I'd like to begin just by going back to the mid 19th century of the United States um, to kind of a remarkable debate and a remarkable uh, moment that, that happened. In, in the years before the start of the American Civil War, a furious debate broke out among American abolitionists about whether the US Constitution should be interpreted as a tool of freedom and liberation, or whether the Constitution should be denounced as an evil document, that an evil compact that sanctioned human slavery. My book, uh, Glorious Liberty, Frederick Douglass and the Fight for an Anti-Slavery Constitution chronicles the life and times of, of perhaps the central figure in this momentous constitutional debate. Today, Frederick Douglass is mostly remembered for his courageous and inspiring life story. Now that has merited, of course, his remarkable odyssey from slavery to freedom shines a searing and unforgettable light on some of the worst and best aspects of American history. But Frederick Douglass deserves to be remembered for much more than that. He deserves to be remembered as a significant political and legal thinker in his own right, as someone who spent the better part of his life grappling with fundamental questions about the, the nature of rights, the role of government, uh, questions that are really still very important to us today. Um, so for that reason, my book places Douglas's constitutional thought at the forefront of his extraordinary life and career, following how his fight for an anti-slavery constitution uh, helped to shape the course of U.S. history in the 19th century and beyond. One of my goals was to show that Frederick Douglass deserves to be ranked right alongside Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Abraham Lincoln, people like that in the, in the pantheon of American civic philosophy. So, so let's, let's dive right into the story. Um, and I'm gonna start at a, a very specific date and, uh, and a remarkable, remarkable day in history. On May 9th, 1851, the leading lights of the abolitionist movement gathered in Syracuse, New York for the 18th annual meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Among the items on the agenda of the society's agenda that day was a resolution calling for the society to officially recommend, to give its endorsement to a, a bunch of anti-slavery publications. Among them was a small weekly newspaper called the Liberty Party Paper. But William Lloyd Garrison, the powerful editor of The Liberator, one of abolitionism's flagship publications, well, Garrison would have none of that. He ob objected immediately. And he objected because the Liberty Party paper, in his view, essentially had endorsed a heresy. It had, it had said that the Constitution was, a, was an anti-slavery document. And that, that was tantamount to heresy in Garrison's idea, Garrison's mind, because Garrison saw the Constitution as a, quote, covenant with death and an agreement with hell. He said it was dripping with human blood. Well, after that objection, a, a new resolution was quickly proposed and accepted by the society, which was that only those publications that towed the Garrisonian line would, would be officially endorsed. Well, it was at this point that, that Frederick Douglass stood up, an escaped former slave, an internationally acclaimed orator, and the author of a widely celebrated autobiography, Douglass cut a commanding figure in the abolitionist ranks. And for the previous 10 years, he had been a friend, an ally, even a self-declared disciple of William Lloyd Garrison. Every week the liberator came, Douglas later said, and every week I made myself master of its contents. I not only liked, I loved this paper and its editor. 
Douglas no longer loved what Garrison had to say about the Constitution. In fact, he now thought that Garrison was dead wrong on the subject. What is more, Douglas had decided that the time had, had come, had finally come for him to say so in public. So honor bound to announce at once, this is what he told the assembled uh, abolitionist worthies at the, at the convention. He felt honor bound to announce it was that the paper he edited, the North Star, no longer possessed the requisite qualification for their official approval and commendation. Here's what he told them. The Constitution should be wielded in behalf of emancipation. Well, those words went down about as well as might have been expected, given the audience. Uh, in, simply put, all hell broke loose at the convention. There were, there were howls of outrage, cries of censure. Garrison he accused Douglas of harboring ulterior, meaning financial motives. There is roguery somewhere, Garrison shouted. Now, Douglas never kind of, never quite forgave his old comrade for that cheap shot. In truth, uh, Frederick Douglas had agonized over his change of opinion. He came around only gradually and only after much brooding. He forced himself to rethink the whole subject, he said and to study with some care, not only the just and proper rules of legal interpretation, but the origin, design, nature, rights, powers, and duties of civil government, and also the relations which human beings sustain to it. Those studies of Douglass's began to uh, bear fruit as early as 1849. Writing in the North Star on March 16th of that year, Douglass said that the Constitution is not a pro-slavery instrument when interpreted standing alone and construed only in the light of its letter. For him, the problem came when he considered the pro-slavery opinions of the men who framed and adopted it. How to reconcile the text of the Constitution with the pro-slavery intentions of the founding fathers. That's what he's talking about, he's grappling with here. A year later, in April 1850, Douglas moved a little further away from the strict Garrisonian position. The Constitution, he now said, is at war with itself. Both liberty and slavery are in the Constitution both liberty and slavery, the, the imperious garrison, you know, he did not like the sound of that. Furthermore, Douglas ventured, if we adopt the preamble to the Constitution, you know, with its soaring language about securing the blessings of liberty, well, that language in the preamble makes it even harder to sustain a pro-slavery reading on the rest of the document. Douglas also noticed something else. He noticed that Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison, and the slaveholders both had the same idea about the Constitution. They both saw the Constitution as pro-slavery. Garrison sees in the Constitution precisely what John C. Calhoun sees there, Douglas wrote. John C. Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, was perhaps the most famous and important pro-slavery theorist of them all. Garrison and Calhoun both thought the Constitution protected slavery. Well, maybe Garrison and Calhoun were both wrong. Douglas started to think, maybe the Constitution might stand for something else. So he kept pouring over the document, pouring over its text, pouring over its meaning. Soon Douglas would look at the Constitution and decide that the text, just the text by itself, just the text, contained nothing that was actively friendly towards slavery. Blot slavery from existence, he said, and the whole framework of the Constitution might remain unchanged. Douglas then went even further adopting the argument of a radical abolitionist lawyer named Lysander Spooner, whose 1845 book, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, had argued that the true test in these matters of constitutional interpretation 
was whether a court of law, strangers to the prior existence of slavery, could consistently with legal rules, judicially determine that the Constitution sanctioned slavery. Here is how uh, Frederick Douglass put that in, in his own words. Suppose a man from another country should read the Constitution with no other knowledge of the character of American institutions than what he derived from the reading of that document. Would anyone pretend that the clause in question would be thought to apply to slaves? We think not. Douglass's close study of constitutional history also started to help him change his point of view. For example, he pointed out, quote, the writings of Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Monroe, Hamilton, Luther Martin, Patrick Henry, John Jay, and a host of other great men, fathers of the Republic, all, all of their writings contained a variety of anti-slavery sentiments and opinions. Whoever else might have intended that the Constitution should protect slavery, Douglas concluded, there were those among the most illustrious in the country who entertained no such intention. In other words, he started to think maybe the, the case for the pro-slavery intentions of the founding fathers had been, had been overstated. By 1851, his mind was made up. Yes, the Constitution did contain certain oblique references to slavery, such as the notorious three-fifths clause, which said that for purposes of taxation and political representation, state populations would be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons uh, three-fifths of all other persons. But that clause and the handful of others like it spoke only in the uh, ambiguous language of persons. Neither the word slave nor the word slavery appeared anywhere in the text of the Constitution. And that textual absence, Douglas concluded, was a fatal weakness in the slaveholder's position that must be exploited. Take the Constitution according to its plain reading, he insisted. I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, he says, Douglas continuing, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. In, in the years to come, Frederick Douglass would deploy those principles and purposes against slavery until the institution was finally destroyed. This was a momentous and far-reaching decision. Douglass, who had once been William Lloyd Garrison's star pupil and protege, uh, would now break definitively with his former mentor. The anti-slavery movement would never be the same again. As I said earlier, Douglas broke the news to Garrison in person at the annual meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Here was a radical change in my opinion, Douglas acknowledged. Naturally, he expected that this radical change would cause some controversy, but he was simply unprepared for the extreme vilifications and really ugly personal attacks that followed. You see, the Garrisonians, they did not just uh, uh, denounce Douglas for being wrong in their view. They, they called him an unprincipled sellout. Uh, as far as political divorces go, the Douglas-Garrison split was an ugly one. For, the for time, the two men, they had labored practically side by side. They had traveled together, shared the same humble lodgings, trod the same stages, faced down the same jeering anti-abolitionist uh, mobs. But they'd also been growing apart philosophically, and the bitter debate over the meaning of the Constitution proved to be the breaking point. It also brought out the worst, it must be said, the worst in William Lloyd Garrison. Let me, let me give you an example of that. The, um, his newspaper, The Liberator, contained a section called The Refuge of Oppression, 
it was basically a column. It appeared right on the on prominently on the front page of every issue. And this uh, column, this section, contained excerpts and quotations from the pro-slavery press, from pro-slavery writers, um, all carefully selected by the liberators so that abolitionists might know the minds of their of their enemies. Well, after their split. Garrison started to include the writings of Frederick Douglass in this, in this column, The Refuge of Oppression. I mean, in, in abolitionist circles, this was a very nasty insult. One of Garrison's readers, abolitionist readers, asked him why he did it. Why, this, this correspondent wrote Garrison in 1853, he placed Douglass's articles in The Refuge of Oppression side by side with the vilest pro-slavery venom from the vilest sheets in the land. Garrison replied that Douglas has, quote, lost much of moral power and will finally lose what remains. To his shame, Garrison was still besmirching, badmouthing Douglas in 1860, right, as the nation around them was pottering on the brink of civil war. Douglas is thoroughly base and selfish, Garrison complained that year. In fact, Douglas reveals himself more and more to me as destitute of every principle of honor, ungrateful to the last degree, and malevolent in spirit. He is not worthy of respect, confidence, or countenance. I mean, I'll just say that the, you know, the idea that Frederick Douglass is not worthy of respect is, a, is one hot take that has not aged very well. Douglass was, of course, hurt and infuriated by these attacks from his once revered mentor, but he refused to be deterred from his new course. The Constitution is our warrant for the abolition of slavery in every state in the American Union, Douglas said. Equipped with that belief, Douglas would enter the political arena and take the fight directly to the slaveholders. Now let's let's talk about the, the slave the slaveholders, the, the pro-slavery side for a second. I mentioned John C. Calhoun uh, before. Let's, let's talk about Calhoun. He was a crafty politician, but also a, a sort of a public intellectual of his time. And he had been, by the mid-19th century, he had been at the commanding heights of government power for several decades. He had served as Secretary of War for President James Monroe, Secretary of State for President John Tyler, and as Vice President under both President John Quincy Adams and under President Andrew Jackson. But it was from his perch in the Senate, uh, where Calhoun represented the state of South Carolina, it's from the Senate where Calhoun wielded his greatest influence of all. And in this influence, he wielded again and again and again on behalf of slavery. He was unapologetically and unequivocally pro-slavery. Here's what he said. Let me be not misunderstood as admitting, even by implication, that the existing relations between the two races in the slaveholding states is an evil, far otherwise. The relation now existing in the slaveholding states between the two, Calhoun said, is instead of an evil, a good, a positive good. He called slavery a positive good. Now, this is, this is an interesting development in the pro-slavery thinking because at the time of the founding, you would find slave-holding founding fathers such as George Mason, who would at least acknowledge the debasing influence of slavery, and then Mason and others work to at least sort of partially limit slavery's, slavery's influence on the national government. Well, Calhoun, you know, he called it a positive good. He would never be caught acknowledging slavery as any sort of necessary. He argued that the slaves should be grateful. As for the Constitution, Calhoun argued that it should never be used for any sort of anti-slavery purpose at all. In Calhoun's view, quote, uh, Congress has no power whatever to prevent the citizens of the southern states from emigrating with their property, meaning slaves, into the territory of the United States. Furthermore, he said, neither the inhabitants of the territories nor their legislatures have any such right to stop the 
slavery. In other words, according to Calhoun, Congress did not even possess the power to prohibit slavery or regulate slavery even in those areas, the federal territories that were under the exclusive control of the federal government. And that, and, and, and not only that, Congress had no right to recognize any new state that banned slavery. And, and Calhoun also thought that the settlers of any, of any new state had no anti-slavery powers of their own. Slavery had to be permanently shielded on every front. And that was not all. Calhoun told the Senate in 1850 that the only way to avoid secession and to save the Union, according to him, was for the North to cease the agitation of the slave question and to provide for the insertion of a provision in the Constitution by amendment that would forever shield slavery from abolitionist influence. But differently, Calhoun wanted to rewrite the Constitution to permanently safeguard, in fact, to prioritize the interests of the slaveholders. Now, surprisingly, this uh, audacious scheme attracts the notice of Frederick Douglass. Uh, writing in the North Star a few days after Calhoun had proposed rewriting the Constitution, Douglas mocks Calhoun's plan. He labels it an act of pure desperation. Mr. Calhoun proposes an amendment of the Constitution. How lame and impotent, Douglas wrote. Calhoun must amend or rather deform the Constitution if the slavery side is to prevail. Now, I've been talking about the Constitution here, but there was also the Declaration of Independence to factor in. Was not the entire American system founded on the self-evident truth that all men are created equal and endowed with certain unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? Didn't that language just essentially vanquish the case for slavery? You know, Calhoun asked himself that question. He wondered about that too. He, sitting at his desk, he would ponder the Declaration of Independence and ponder its meaning for his beloved slave system. In 1848, Calhoun finally follows his pro-slavery logic to its conclusion, and he denounces the Declaration of Independence and denounces its author, Thomas Jefferson. In fact, Calhoun, he denounces the entire liberal tradition dating back to the English political theorist, John Locke, who had argued that government was formed to protect humanity's pre-existing natural rights. According to Calhoun, the notion that all men are created equal is the most false and dangerous of all political errors. It originated with certain writers on government, such as John Locke, who preached the virtues of that unbounded and individual liberty supposed to belong to man. That's Calhoun's word, supposed to belong to man. In Calhoun's view, Locke's liberal philosophy was entirely wrong. The quantum of power on the part of the government, Calhoun wrote, instead of being equal in all cases, must necessarily be very unequal among different people. As for individual liberty or freedom, Calhoun says, it must be subordinate to whatever power may be necessary to protect society. The safety and well-being of society is paramount to individual liberty, according to Calhoun. That is the opposite of the logical view. The great mistake of the American Revolution was that Locke's false notion of individual liberty was inserted in the Declaration of Independence, Calhoun says. He looks at history and he says, you know, this, this mistake is not immediately felt, but it, it starts to germinate and in time produce what Calhoun calls poisonous fruits. Now, these poisonous fruits are, is in fact, the rise of an organized abolitionist movement that takes the language of the Declaration of Independence seriously and therefore uses that language against slavery. Frederick Douglass also, like Calhoun, understands that slavery and liberalism are fundamentally incompatible. 
you go back to Locke in the 1681 book, The Second Treatise of Government, he wrote that every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. Well, Frederick Douglass did more than just take those words to heart. He used that concept of self-ownership as the foundation for an all-out attack on the slave system. In his writings and speeches, Douglass would embrace the very liberal principles that Calhoun had spurned. Every man, Douglas said, is the original, natural, rightful, and absolute owner of his own body. And he can only part from his self-ownership by the commission of a crime. In other words, slavery only existed because the enslavers relied on violence, theft, and intimidation to maintain their criminal control over the bodies of the enslaved. These actions violated every principle of the natural rights philosophy. And the slaveholders knew it, which is why pro-slavery thinkers like Calhoun were forced to explicitly repudiate Locke, Jefferson, and the Declaration of Independence. Frederick Douglass made the case for natural rights with particular and memorable force on September 3rd, 1848, when he wrote an extraordinary open letter to his old master's former master, a slaveholder named Thomas Old. Since escaping from Old's control 10 years earlier, Douglas wrote, I have often thought I should like to explain to you the grounds upon which I have justified myself in running away from you. Well, the justification for Douglas was simple. He wrote, you are a man and so am I. In leaving you, I took nothing but what belonged to me and in no way lessened your means for obtaining an honest living. Your faculties remained yours and mine became useful to their rightful owner. This is the natural rights philosophy in a nutshell. Uh, Self-ownership, individualism, liberty. In, in, the, in my book, I, I note that although Douglas is not normally credited as such, he undoubtedly deserves to be ranked as one of the 19th century's foremost proponents of Lockean liberalism. Take a moment to um, just to kind of stop and think about what Calhoun and Douglas have each been saying here about the American system of government. Douglas said slavery could disappear tomorrow, and you don't need to change a word in the Constitution. Calhoun, you know, insisted that the Constitution was and should be pro-slavery, but he also was forced to admit and just to acknowledge the reality that to keep the forces of anti-slavery anti at bay, the Constitution was going to need to be amended. Douglas said slavery and the Declaration of Independence were simply incompatible, that Jefferson's words uh, supported the, the, the abolitionist movement, supported the case for ending slavery. Well, Calhoun you know, definitely agreed with that, which is why he denounces Jefferson and the Declaration. You look at Calhoun and you see someone distancing himself from the words of the Constitution and distancing himself from the Declaration in order to make his case for slavery. You look at Frederick Douglass, by contrast, and you see someone embracing these founding documents. In fact, Douglass emerges here as a sort of second generation founding father, as someone urging the, the nation, the nation to, to finally live up to the principles of liberty and equality contained in the founding documents. Frederick Douglass's case for an anti-slavery constitution began with the preamble. The Constitution was written, the preamble said, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. 
to ourselves and our posterity. In Douglas's view, every constitutional provision that followed must be interpreted in light of those overarching goals. Furthermore, because the Constitution never once used the word slave or slavery, it was impossible to sustain a pro-slavery interpretation while remaining faithful to the preamble's liberty-minded objectives, not to mention remaining faithful to the Constitution's overall role as a protector of individual liberty. Interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, Douglas said, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Now, whether you fully agree with Frederick Douglass about all of that or not, there is no denying the overall force of his legal arguments, and there is absolutely no denying the significant impact those arguments had on the broader anti-slavery movement at the time. That impact is all the more remarkable when you remember that Douglass never held elected office, never led, never even led a winning political coalition. You know, he had his greatest impact as a sort of perennial outsider. He often made common cause with politicians and parties. You know, he worked at various points with the Liberty Party, he worked with the Free Soil Party, and then he worked with the Republican Party. And he eagerly took part in the great political debates and political contests, presidential elections and so forth, you know, those debates of his time. But his voice always remained that of a radical. He was sometimes supportive and sometimes cajoling, but always he was seeking to push the system in a more thoroughgoing abolitionist direction. In a sense, he served as the conscience of the anti-slavery political movement. And uh, his influence in that role proved to be far-reaching indeed. Throughout the 1850s, as the nation lurched ever closer towards secession and an armed conflict, Douglas would make perhaps his greatest impact of all. At a time when the Constitution was at war with itself, as he had once put it, he would help to lead the fight on the side of freedom. Through his words, his actions, and the extraordinary personal example that he set, Frederick Douglass helped to move his country a little bit closer towards liberty. If only more Americans, you know, then and now could say the same thing, we might all be in a better place. Um, Thank you all very much for, for listening. That's the end of my prepared remarks. I thank you for your attention. Um, I believe there's some time for questions. I would, I would love to hear from you. Um, so yes, thank you again very much. I'm really happy to be here and to be invited back to Georgetown. Um, it's a school that I have a really close connection to and I'm just delighted to be back here. So um, right now I'm a professor and vice dean at Brooklyn Law School. Um, and I do mostly intellectual property law and also constitutional interpretation, two great tastes that don't really go great together. Um, and this is diverse originalism. So um, originalism has a race and gender problem, its critics say. You know, it's an interpretive philosophy created and held by a bunch of white men that obsess over the views of dead white men. Many lawyers and law students look at originalism through this lens and say, mm, that's not for me. Now, if you are an originalist and you've been going through historical documents, trying to figure out what necessary and proper means, or if you're worried about constraining judges' discretion, you might hear these kinds of rejections of originalism or concerns about originalism and, and not quite know what to do with them. You might think, hey, listen, either originalism is the correct way to interpret our Constitution or not. That's not going to change if the people who like originalism are conservative or white or male. And if you believe that, you might be inclined to ignore race and gender-based critiques of originalism. But ignoring those critiques would be a mistake. 
originalism can both be the correct way to interpret the Constitution, and these concerns can still get at something that's real and important. So with this in mind, this talk will grapple a little bit more with what originalism's race and gender problem means more precisely, um, and also discuss what originalists can take away from grappling seriously with these concerns. To start, we should think about what people mean when they say originalism has a race and gender problem. Commentators don't necessarily frame it this way, but most concerns can generally be categorized into three types concerns about consequences, concerns about legitimacy, and concerns about alienation. Consequences, legitimacy, and alienation. So let's unpack each of those and see what we learn from each one. First, someone could be concerned that originalism creates bad results for people with liberal and progressive values, for women, or for people of color. And critics might believe this because the people who wrote the Constitution were white men, their values then were different from our values now. And also someone might be suspicious that conservatives like originalism now, so presumably they like it because it reaches conservative results. So there's not too much for originalists to learn from this concern. Some argue the Constitution does lead to progressive results, like Larry Solom in his essay, Surprising Originalism, and like the progressive originalist group, the Constitutional Accountability Center. But at the end of the day, if someone rejects originalism because they don't like its results, the only response is to appeal to higher order commitments, such as to rule of law or consistency or legitimacy, making it a preferable interpretive philosophy. But that's not the only kind of concern about consequences someone could have. For example, some people are concerned that conservatives today are consciously manipulating originalist interpretation to yield results they like. And this is really an argument about bad faith. And bad faith is everywhere right now. It's much easier to demonize your opponents than to try to understand how they came to their positions. And the unfortunate reality is that a small percentage of any movement acts in bad faith. But hopefully if you've spent time with or listened to many originalists through these talks at Georgetown, um, hopefully you've concluded that most of the originalists you've met act in good faith. Again, there's little to learn about this concern except to try to stamp out bad faith when you see it. But there's a third potential concern about consequences, and this is where things start to get interesting. The third concern about consequences is that originalists will come to good faith conclusions about what the Constitution means because of unconscious biases and distortions of judgment. And that those judgment errors made by originalists will tend to be similar because the population of originalists are homogenous. So the argument here goes, originalists tend to be white, male, conservative or libertarian or Republican, and so they'll tend to see things through the lens of their own experience and beliefs. Now bias isn't unique to people with these qualities. All of us understand culture or context a little bit more clearly when it's one for fam we're familiar with or where the situation that we're imagining is similar to ones we've been in. Um, and when we're trying to understand the larger world, it's easy to project our own way of seeing things onto others. At its most toxic, this might be the psychological phenomenon of projection, right? The liar says you're a liar. Um, at its best, it's empathy at work, right? We think, oh, he probably meant X when he said Y, when we mean, well, I would have meant X if I said Y, so he probably did too. 
you know, the, uh, and this is, this can be quite good, um, but it can also be a little bit distorting if the person in the other position is differently situated than you are. This is always going to be the case when interpreting the past because the people in the 1790s were in a very different position than the people now, often thinking about different problems, different circumstances. So this concern of having skewed opinions is worth taking seriously. It's a concern we can learn from. To be clear, this concern doesn't require, or taking this concern seriously, doesn't require us to believe that truth is inaccessible or that truth doesn't exist because humans are too biased. Rather, by recognizing that cognitive distortions exist, we can make ourselves better at accessing truth, better at understanding what's really going on. Duke professor Catherine Bartlett captures this idea about recognizing bias, helping us to access truth in a particularly eloquent quote. Um, in a Law Review article, she writes, overconfidence in our objectivity and excessive cynicism about it are both truth suppressing, although for different reasons. When we are too sure of our objectivity, we take things conveniently for granted, neglecting the obligation to try to identify and defend our assumptions and our criteria for truth and to recognize alternative perspectives. When we're too cynical, we also neglect the obligation to look beyond our own perspectives since we don't think objectivity exists or we believe it exists only to maintain certain power relationships. There seems to be little reason to search for it. So bias is tricky to combat because it's subtle, right? We're not cartoonishly aiming at our own self-interest, um, but we can't help to use the frameworks we have for understanding the world. You know, we may um, ourselves or have a friend who tends to be too trusting or too cynical. They judge the world incorrectly because they have a skewed interpretation of what's going on. That's not necessarily helping them. It's not necessarily acting in self-interest, but it is a bias. And so sometimes our biases advance our interests. Sometimes they just distort reality. Um, Professor Jack Balkin from Yale describes this in another work. He writes, the choice of which facts are relevant and important and how and why they are relevant and important are shaped by our theoretical and practical commitments. Those commitments prefigure what we look for in the past, how we evaluate what we find, what we discard as peripheral or not germane, and what we do with the evidence we bring forward with us into the present. So there are plenty of places to skew our judgment about interpretation. Um, so for example, um, there's several different versions of originalism. The one that maybe most quickly comes to mind but has been largely rejected is original intent originalism. You do what the founders intended. The most popular right now would probably be um, what's called public meaning originalism, where you try to follow the meaning of the words in the document um, according to what a, re a member of the founding public would have understood them to mean. And in many cases, a public meaning originalist asks what a reasonable member of the founding public would have understood the text to mean. So we intuitively get what this idea reasonable means. If the Constitution says you can create and regulate postal roads, um, you know, we might be pretty clear that the, a reasonable person wouldn't think that that means you could regulate scuba diving. But the intuitive idea of reasonableness can be pretty fraught in close cases. So we can see the challenge in understanding a concept like reasonableness, in particular by looking at the discussion of the reasonable person 
um, in feminist legal studies in the 1980s. So back in the 1980s, um, um, circuit courts concerned about cases of sexual harassment and domestic violence, some began asking how a reasonable woman would respond to harassment as opposed to the reasonable man or the reasonable person. This move sparked a controversy as some commentators noticed that when courts described the reasonable woman, they seemed to include a bunch of stereotypes about women. They were more moral than men, more sensitive than men, less interested in sex than men. And so suddenly you realize that our notions of reasonable man, reasonable person, reasonable woman aren't identical. These characters aren't empty. In our minds, these characters have qualities, whether we're conscious of them or not. Um, and context matters, right? Maybe they should be this, maybe they should all be the same, maybe they shouldn't be the same. But the lesson from this reasonable woman discussion is that we need to recognize that when we decide who the generic reasonable person is, we're implicitly making judgments about those person's characteristics. And we might be projecting our own expectation of what people and what reasonable people are like when we ask who the reasonable person is or what the reasonable person would do or how the reasonable person would interpret this phrase in the Constitution. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask what is reasonable, but we need to show our work. What makes one interpretation reasonable and another not, particularly if there's evidence that some actual people maybe believed both interpretations in the founding era, um, is going to involve some, some interpretive work. Identify what canons of construction you're using. Articulate each move so you can better uncover when you might be projecting from your own personal experience. So in a lot of ways, this concern isn't new. Um, originalists are very concerned about bias in their writing and trying to strip it out. Um, John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport have a version of originalism called original methods originalism, where they have a specific rule for how to choose between um, competing constitutional interpretations. They call the 5149 rule based on how much evidence is on either side. What they're striving to do is remove discretion in order to remove bias. So this concern isn't absent from originalism, but Trying really hard not to be biased is still swimming uphill to some degree. Um, to be successful, you really have to bake the mechanism for contesting meaning into the interpretive process. And I think the best tonic for lack of objectivity is diversity. Um, when people come from different perspectives and backgrounds, it's more likely that they'll be able to check one another and identify when each other's interpretations might be skewed by that person projecting from their own experiences and values. Diversity can help us find objective truths by giving us more starting points to triangulate meaning from. So when I make this claim, I think it's important to distinguish it from, uh, so this claim, the idea that diversity can help facilitate correct judgments and objectivity from a different idea standpoint epistemology. So the notion of standpoint epistemology also emerges from feminist legal studies um, and is embraced today by some critical race theorists as well. And maybe a very quick hand wavy summary of it is that a person in a certain position is better able to speak authoritatively about the context they're in because there's certain kinds of knowing that can only be accessed or are best accessed through lived experience. 
So this argument is not that we should privilege certain interpreters over others. It's not standpoint epistemology. Rather, it's arguing that when we in the present are trying to understand what the Constitution meant in the past, we're more likely to be able to do that if the people posing the questions come from a variety of present day perspectives. So this is lesson number one for originalists. It's important to foster a diverse population of originalists if we wanna be accurate in understanding what originalism permits and demands. So a second major concern about originalism that often occurs alongside concerns about consequ consequences is the concern that the constitution isn't legitimate because either the time, because of the amount of time since ratification or because of the parties who drafted and ratified it. So the core of this concern is that any constitution that excluded people of color and women in its formation is illegitimate. In many cases, even though this, this concern is framed as one about legitimacy, it is ultimately a concern about consequences. It's a worry that the constitution is quite likely to create bad outcomes for people of color and women because there were no women and people of color among its drafters. In some other ways, this is a more particular version of the dead hand argument, the idea that people then had different values than people now. So why should we be bound by the decisions of people then? So that's legitimacy. Because consequences, legitimacy, alienation. The third major concern is alienation. And in some ways, I think it's the most interesting concern because it's not always explicitly articulated when people are talking about originalism. It gets lost often when the explicit conversations in discussions about consequences, good faith, and legitimacy. But concerns about alienation are doing a lot of work in driving anti-originalist arguments and anti-originalist sentiments. Sometimes this concern is specifically about the taint from slavery, where you would argue the Constitution is just so defiled by its complicated entanglement with slavery, it can't be made acceptable by the Reconstruction Amendments or substantive changes. The Constitution is just so degraded that it can't be reclaimed or reframed or justly relied upon. Other times the concern with alienation is broader and it tends to take two forms. Um, one is a person can feel alienated from the past. You don't see yourself in the founding fathers, in the revolutionaries, and so it doesn't feel like your story. It doesn't feel like your constitution. You can also feel alienated in the present. Originalism now and enthusiasm for the Constitution now feels very separate from you. Right now, the fact that originalism is considered kind of a conservative thing, a Republican thing, a white guy thing, contributes to that distance that other people feel from the Constitution generally and from originalism specifically. So here's where we get to the, the big lesson originalists can take from the race and gender critiques of originalism. Alienation, even when backward looking, is about how people treat each other today, or is often about how people treat each other today. What many critics of originalism are honing in on is the sense that originalists don't care about me, so why should I care about them? And that's not irrational. That's not denying a logical truth. That's someone betting that whatever the actual content of originalism is, if its practitioners don't care about my well-being, they won't correct wrong interpretations that hurt me, they won't respect me enough to listen if I think they've got it wrong, 
And even if there are legal ways to solve my problem, they'll hide an originalism to keep a result that disadvantages me. But alienation can be fixed and it should be fixed. First, if, if originalism is going to be you know, successful, widespread, adopted mode of constitutional interpretation, it needs a broad range of adherence or it won't gain the momentum necessary to really become a, an accepted mode of interpretation. And second, it's the right thing to do. The act of trying to remedy alienation isn't the same as twisting outcomes or changing results. It's about being more accurate and more fair and revitalizing commitment to the constitutional project. So I think there's several ways to do this, to address alienation. To some degree, and this is maybe to a limited degree, backward-looking alienation can be remedied by looking at historical works written by women and people of color in the relevant constitutional time periods. So if you're a public meaning originalist, what you care about is how the public understood um, the words in the Constitution in the relevant time period, the founding period, or when the amendments were um, being adopted. So women and people of color participate in creating language. We all participate in creating the language that we speak because usage creates the language. Uh, and so the language that these people used create public meaning and they are evidence of public meaning. A lot of works by uh, women and people of color, particularly in the founding era, era are lost. Um, and what we do have is skewed to people who tended to be the most prominent or the most wealthy. Um, but the act of investigating nonetheless has numerous beneficial effects, even though we're not gonna get the full picture. Um, first, whatever we find is broader evidence of public meaning or meanings. That only improves interpretation. Second, the act of looking says to everyone, women and people of color today, that I care about people like you and what they thought. Um, and even if the act of looking doesn't change what we ultimately conclude about meaning, um, and it probably won't because language usage often does tend to be pretty similar among geographically similar groups, right? And so a lot of these people were talking amongst each other. So they were participating and influencing each other um, to kind of have a specific, a particular kind of language or usage style emerge. The acts of checking will help undermine the concern that originalism is bad because those who believe in it today just don't care about what women and people of color think. And third, sometimes you might find something really cool and surprising. So when I was writing the paper, Diverse Originalism, that's the basis for this talk, um, the most striking particular sort of short piece of text that I found was written by Absalom Jones, who is a um, black minister, the founder of the Protestant Episcopal African Church. Um, and he wrote a petition to Congress in 1799 calling for the repeal of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And in the petition, he writes, in the Constitution and the Fugitive Bill, no mention is made of black people or slaves. Therefore, if the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Congress are of any validity, we beseech that as we are men, we may be admitted to take part of the liberties and unalienable rights therein held forth, firmly believing that the extending of justice and equity to all classes 
would be a means of drawing down the blessings of heaven upon this land for the peace and prosperity of which and the real happiness of every member of the community we fervently pray. So Jones's petition essentially says, the constitution doesn't actually distinguish between slaves and free people or white people and black people. So everyone has the same rights under the constitution. Jones's petition anticipates a more comprehensive similar argument made by abolitionist Lysander Spooner in 1845 um, in a pamphlet called the, Unconstitutionally, the Unconstitutionality of Slavery. So Spooner's uh, pamphlet argued that the Constitution actually didn't condone slavery because every clause that appeared to regulate slavery could be interpreted to have another reference. So Spooner argued that other persons in the three-fifths clause referred to aliens, to foreigners, that the importation of persons referred to the importation of foreigners into the country, and that persons held in service or labor referred to convicts and indentured servants. So Spooner's discussion, to characterize it in present-day terms, advocated for understanding the Constitution according to its original meaning rather than according to the original intent of the authors. Spooner acknowledged that the Constitution's authors intended the three-fifths clause, the importation clause, and the service or labor clause to refer to slaves. However, he also argued that author authorial intention didn't determine the meaning of the Constitution. Rather, the Constitution's meaning was the meaning which its words, interpreted by sound rules of interpretation, express. Later in an 1860 speech, Frederick Douglass echoed Spooner, reasoning, quote, the intentions of those who framed the Constitution, be they good or bad, for slavery or against slavery, are to be respected so far and only so far, as will find those intentions plainly stated in the Constitution. It was what they said that was adopted by the people, not what they were ashamed or afraid to say and really omitted to say. So for a public meaning originalist, the argument of Spooner's 1845 unconstitutionality of slavery struggles to overcome the apparent reality that everyone in the framing period knew that the Constitution sanctioned slavery. Um, if everyone recognized that the Three-Fifths Clause, the Importation Clause, the Service or Labor Clause referred to slavery, then the lack of mention of slavery doesn't establish the original public meaning didn't include it. Um, text in context is what matters. If everyone knows what it means, that's what it means. Um, instead, it might be better to see Spooner's 1845 pamphlet as a rhetorical tool for 19th century abolitionists, highlighting the hypocrisy within the Constitution. Jones's 1799 petition, though, um, makes Spooner's argument more persuasive on the merits for two reasons. So first, Jones's language raises the question of whether it was truly universally acknowledged that constitutional rights didn't apply to slaves, right? So even if excluding slaves was the intent of the drafters, contemporary readers might have believed that the drafters' reticence to name slavery had inadvertently resulted in their writing a document that didn't have the intended legal effect. And second, Jones raises this issue only about a decade after the Constitution's passage. The fact that Jones's petition was sent to Congress suggests that he believed his interpretation constituted a reasonable legal position, perhaps even he thought was the best interpretation of the Constitution given the interpretive conventions of the day. So 
the reconstruction amendments moot this question, right, of whether Jones and other members of the public genuinely believed the Constitution um, protected the rights of slaves whenever it mentioned persons or people. Um, but Jones's legal argument illustrates how attentions to the attention to the writings beyond the usual suspects has the potential to highlight the existence of genuinely held alternate interpretations of constitutional text. So to sum up, you can combat alienation from the past by looking for diverse sources of constitutional meaning. It improves accuracy, demonstrates good faith, and can teach us some genuinely interesting things. The problem of present day alienation is more complicated, but still addressable. It's tied up with the notion that originalists, Republicans, and conservatives, like we said before, don't care about progressive people, liberal people, women, people of color, LGBTQ people, etc. So we're in an increasingly polarized society, and oftentimes we are more inclined to see people in it as good or bad. Of course, people generally aren't good or bad. People are complicated. People are good and bad. And that's where to find insight about how to lessen present-day alienation from the Constitution and from originalism. The first thing you have to do is challenge the narrative that people are heroes or villains. Two popular ways of thinking about American history on the left and on the right, respectively, are narrator narrations of degradation and narratives of reverence and improvement, right? So some progressives might have a narrative of degradation. They might be arguing that we should cancel Thomas Jefferson, whereas some on the right almost worship the founders as saints. Neither of these narratives captures both the founders and the Constitution's triumphs and failures. And neither narrative pushes us to be our best selves and to be kind of the best America. There are different and more inclusive stories that we can tell. Um, and that I think better than anyone, um, Randy Barnett in our Republican Constitution and Jack Balkin in his book, Constitutional Redemption, kind of capture a different, more complex approach to the story of American history. Um, Jack interestingly describes um, the story of America and its constitution in, in semi-religious terms as a story of redemption. Um, so in his book, he writes, a narrative of redemption assumes we exist and have always existed in a fallen condition. We live in compromises with the evils of the past and we are compromised by them. Yet over time, we seek to free ourselves from the sins and inadequacies of the past and hold ourselves ever more true to those best parts that have always been within us. We the people made a promise to ourselves in the past that we strive to fulfill. What's important about the redemption narrative is that it acknowledges sin and failure without concluding that the sins and failures of the founders, the amenders, etc., make us immutably degraded. Because it's the human condition to sin and fail and strive to be better. The redemption narrative thus calls us to be more devoted to the promise of the Constitution rather than to walk away from it. Closely tied to this move of rejecting the, the false binary of heroes and villains is the notion of separating author from text. Um, there's probably no greater illustration of the dissonance between author and text than Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. So Thomas Jefferson lays out with excruciating clarity his belief in the inferiority of black people 
in his book, The Notes on the State of Virginia. Yet it's also Jefferson who tells us that all men are created equal and have the unalienable right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So how do we understand the writing and the person? One approach is to just treat Jefferson's writings as defiled because Jefferson was so flawed. But that leaves the meaning of the text and the good of the text and the inspiration that it's giving people behind. Another choice is to separate Jefferson from the text that he wrote, recognizing that people are complicated and sometimes they even say things whose public meaning is very different from what they subjectively mean or what they subjectively think. So a great example of separating author from text is the founding era black man James Fortin's 1813 essay, Letters from a Man of Color. So Fortin wrote, quote, we hold this truth to be self-evident that God created all men equal and is one of the most prominent features in the Declaration of Independence. And in that glorious fabric of collected wisdom, our noble constitution. This idea embraces the Indian and the European, the savage and the saint, the Peruvian and the Laplander, the white man and the African, and whatever measures are adopted subversive of this inestimable privilege are in direct violation of the letter and the spirit of our constitution and become subject to the animate version of all, particularly those who are deeply interested in the measure. Fortin doesn't spit on the Declaration and the Constitution because of their compromised authors. Rather, he focuses only on the text and calls out actions as deviant that fail to live up to what he understands to be the public meaning of the document's stated values. So promoting a view like Fortin's with reference to diverse authors like Fortin, buy into the redemption narrative and help render the Constitution everyone's Constitution because it renders the public meaning more important than the founder's character. So one final lesson, um, and probably the most important one for addressing alienation, is that originalists have to do the hard work of breaking the association between conservatism, republicanism, and originalism, and being racist and sexist. And so if you are an originalist, a conservative, a republican, um, you might feel like this is hard and unfair because even if whatever you're saying and doing, you're lumped in with other, other people with similar labels and you can't control what other people do or say. Um, it's not fair that lots of people with very different views can be lumped together in the public mind because they all look vaguely right of center. But this is the work that has to be done. You have to do it. Um, and it's possible, but only if originalists take great care in how they talk about public issues today. Um, so this may sound a bit abstract, so maybe the best way to talk about this is to illustrate by analogy. So um, Jacob Levy wrote a pretty moving essay um, in the, the think tank, the Niskanen Center's blog a few years ago, that illustrates this exact problem in the context of economic libertarianism. So Levy writes, Quote, think about the different ways that market liberals and libertarians talk about welfare from how they talk about other kinds of government redistribution. There's no talk of a culture of dependence among farmers, although they receive far more government aid per capita than do the urban poor. But once the imagined typical welfare recipient was a black mother, welfare became not a matter of economic and constitutional concern, but of moral panic about parasites fraud and the long-term collapse of self-reliance. 
Levy's insight here is that even when one holds a general cross-cutting position, like government welfare is bad regardless of who receives it, much is revealed by how you choose to talk about that belief. When someone bemoans the welfare state but focuses emotional wrath on individual black welfare recipients rather than on predominantly white farmers, many black Americans will hear those statements and reasonably conclude this person doesn't like black people rather than this person doesn't like welfare. But Levy's essay also suggests that despite historic associations, originalism doesn't need to disproportionately appeal to white Americans and to men. He writes analogously, analogously about free market politics. Libertari quote, Libertarian, individualist, and market liberal ideas, concepts, slogans, and advocates aren't alone in having a history that is entangled with white supremacy. Hardly any set of social ideas in American intellectual history lacks such an entanglement. This is as true as the of the technocratic progressivism associated with the racist Woodrow Wilson as it is of the populist democracy associated with the racist Andrew Jackson. There's no good reason to sever democracy or progressivism from their complicated genealogies while tying federalism or freedom of association to theirs. But nonetheless, in recent decades, progressives have largely been effective at separating progressive ideas from their unseemly white supremacist history, while Republicans and capitalism are increasingly associated with racial subordination and oppression. Um, so this change in how people view progressive ideas illustrates a vital insight. We kind of collectively in how we speak, we choose today whether progressive, liberal, libertarian, and conservative values are associated with a racist and sexist past, in how we talk about them, and through what we emphasize and de-emphasize. We choose today whether originalism is associated, is associated with the racist and sexist values of the founding era public, by how we talk about the legitimacy of originalist methods and the consequences of originalist interpretation. So to put kind of action items on this, when you're doing research, look up what women and people of color said, particularly about the Reconstruction Amendments. There were a lot of people in that time period who wrote and spoke who were influential figures about these amendments. If you believe in Second Amendment rights, make a point of being equally vo vocal about it, whether a particular gun owner is white or black and be consistent in your views about the Commerce Clause, regardless of whether the subject matter is healthcare or homegrown marijuana. So there's one more elephant in the room um, that I, I think I'd be remiss not to address directly. Um, and that's how, that's outside of originalism and the Constitution. Um, it's about how the very polarized political and social climate we're in right now affects this discussion, right? So, um, I imagine that this audience has people of a variety of viewpoints, um, but if you're on the conservative side, I could imagine that a lot of this talk was kind of a turnoff because you might disagree about how some of the loudest voices on the left think about race and gender and how they would solve the problems that they perceive. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Just because you disagree with some philosophical approaches to combating sexism and racism doesn't mean that sexism and racism don't exist or that there's nothing to work on. Um, so to sum up, 
regardless of this tense political context. Originalism is more accurate when it's diverse and sensitive to diverse populations. And we can make originalism more diverse by combating the feelings of alienation that many feel towards originalism today in how we talk about originalism with others. So thank you. I, I, after graduating from Cornell, I clerked on the US Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. I then went off and did work at Kroll and Mooring, uh, where I loved practice here in Washington, DC. But then uh, what really, uh, where I wanted to go was into the academic world at some point to teach. And so uh, I had the uh, great fortune of getting a visiting assistant professorship for one year at George Mason uh, Law School. Um, and then moved on to an Olin Fellowship at the University of Virginia School of Law, after which I went on the full tenure track market and ended up at Chapman University out in California for the past uh, 16 years before, uh, before coming back here home to George Mason, where I'm, now the, uh, where I'm now a professor of law as well as the deputy executive director of the Law and Economics Center. Uh, but one of, the, one of the thrills in between uh, going to California and getting back here permanently was the, the fall of 2018 when I got to... Uh, uh, study as a fellow, as a visiting scholar at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. And I gave a talk early on when this book was uh, just uh, in, an, in a much uh, more underdeveloped stage to all of uh, the students that came to a talk similar to this, but it was live back then uh, when we could still meet in person. And I hope we'll do that again sometime and I'll get to meet all of you at some time uh, in person as well. But one thing that was, was wonderful is seeing how many ideas came from that audience that have made it into the book now. And there'll be some credit to those, those folks in that, in that seminar that we did um, uh, in the book. Uh, and the book is in its final stages of editing right now and should be out by early next year. Um, but uh, what, there's still some room for me to make improvements. So I'm excited to get some of your comments and any of your questions that um, might help me to take this in a, in a slightly different direction uh, for certain points. So what are we gonna be talking about today? I'm gonna pop up a screen, so I'm gonna stop seeing all of you, but I'll, I'll share some slides to kind of give you an idea of things. I'm gonna talk for about 20, 25 minutes, and then uh, we're gonna have hopefully some robust Q&A for the rest of the period. So this book is about framing the Constitution and the impact of labels on constitutional interpretation. And so what I wanna sort of start out with is, is uh, identify what is a label, uh, what is framing, and why might that matter? Uh, in part of this talk, I'm gonna to talk to you about why it matters more generally. Uh, at other points, given the, uh, you know, the, the theme of, of study at the Center for the Constitution, I do want you to start thinking about whether or not labels that we affix to constitutional content help us or hurt us in the endeavor to identify original meaning uh, um, or, or uh, otherwise um, effectuate constitutional interpretation in a particular way. So I'm gonna share my screen and um, uh, hopefully everyone can see it. Thumbs up if everyone can see it, yes? Good, all right, so um, the idea here is that uh, we're gonna talk about labels. So how do the extra, extra textual labels we affix to constitutional rights, powers, and other concepts, how have they been generated? By extra textual, the reason why I'm choosing that phrase is because there are no labels actually in the Constitution itself, right? You don't have a label that says this section is going to be called this. So uh, extra textual. And then how do those labels impact or more precisely have framing effects on the interpretation, construction, and perception 
of the quality, content, purpose, value, or meaning of constitutional texts to which they're attached. Let me just step back for a minute and tell you how this pro project started. I am principally a property law scholar. I do work in constitutional law, but I teach property law. I've taught property law for the past 20 years. It is sort of my passion. And, and I was asking myself, okay, we, we have this thing called the takings clause. And one thing I wondered was why do we, you know, why do we call it by the power that's limited rather than by the right that's protected? We don't call, for example, the First Amendment uh, speech protections, the censorship clause or the abridgment of speech clause. No, we call it the free speech clause or we call it the free press clause, right? We're labeling it by the thing that we want to emphasize. So if you think about emphasis labeling, which I'll talk about in just a moment, uh, we're emphasizing a particular aspect. And by emphasizing a particular aspect, do we heighten that aspect to, to a, a priority level? Uh, if we're heightening the priority to the power, even though limited, uh, are we somehow legitimizing the existence of the takings power rather than focusing on the property rights which are protected within the takings clause? And the reason why I was so uh, curious about this is because to me, and I ended up writing two articles on why, uh, why, we should be, why we should care about a right to keep property. You often learn in property class about the right to acquire, you look, learn about the right to transfer, you learn about uh, uh, you know, uh, the right to exchange in property, but you don't learn about the right to keep property or the right to refuse to sell, uh, right, the right to be free of coercive transfers. And so when I was thinking about the takings clause to the US Constitution, which for those of you, who, I, I, I shouldn't presume that everyone knows, it's nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So there's two principal components in that. In the Calabrese and Malamed, and economics kind of language. One is a property rule, the other is a liability rule. So the public use provision is a property rule. In other words, it can be enforced by an injunction. That is, you can say no to the government. You can say, government, go away if they're taking for anything other than a public use, right? You can say, no, you cannot transfer a private use. I have the right to enjoin the government against taking for private uses, which means I can enforce my right there under the public use clause as a property rule. I can enforce it by injunction. Now, in reality, you've all read Kilo or heard about Kilo and, and the predecessors to that. It's, the government has very few limitations on the public use clause, but nonetheless, it's supposed to operate like a property rule. The second uh, thing uh, that is in the takings clause is, a, uh, is nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The just compensation is a liability rule. That is, once you cross the hurdle of the property rule, it is being taken for a public use. Then all you can ask for from the government is just compensation. You can no longer refuse the government. You, can, you must allow the coercion to go forward. So what is the takings clause really trying to do? I postulate that, that I postured uh, postulate that it was meant to protect the right to keep. That is, the, the, the public use clause says, no, you can have a right to refuse to sell for anything other than a public use. And so we're protecting the right to keep there. Um, and then the second is, what is the just compensation component of the takings clause meant to uh, compensate for? Well, it's not meant to compensate really for the property. What's, what, right, what right, what little stick in the bundle is lost? The stick in the bundle that's lost is your right to refuse to sell. Right? It's the coercion that's being compensated for more than anything else. So when I first started off on this project, I said, look, it really isn't, the takings clause isn't about facilitating takings. It's about actually providing two levels of protection to the right to keep. And so why aren't we focused on those rights rather than on the power in the label itself? Then I wondered to myself, okay, 
am I, can I learn some things from a variety of different social sciences, psycholinguistics, advertising and marketing and other, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, psychology and linguistics generally, uh, the philosophy of language about whether or not it matters. Does it matter that we call it the takings clause? And so I started delving into all the framing research and, and the social science research on why the way we frame something affects the way we view something. Uh, and so even if you just think about, you know, if you take, if any of you have kids or a little brother or sister, right, they, or maybe you just have, uh, you remember your childhood, you had some really horrible, uh, you know, paintings that you brought home from school and your parents put it up on the refrigerator. Um, now, imagine if instead you put it in a really pretty frame, right, a really expensive looking Victorian frame or something and then slapped it up on the wall, you can call it art, right? And in fact, there's a lot of museums where there's some things that look a little bit like that, but they call art and it's really expensive. And if it weren't in that frame, though, but if it, instead it were on the refrigerator, you might just think it was a kid who just doodled a little bit. And so that frame changes your perception of the thing that's framed within it. And that's kind of the essence of the social science literature. I don't want to go deep, too deep into it. We can do that in the Q&A if you want. But that's the, the basic idea. So if we put this takings clause frame, the label itself creates a frame. If we put that around it, does it change how we view what's inside of it? That is the actual text, the actual meaning, the actual interpretation of the constitutional provisions that are, that are there. Um, we, we have a few examples. I'll, 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 there are on a couple slides in just a moment. Um, we have a few examples, including, uh, for example, that, 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 that you might uh, recognize, including uh, uh, the, the idea of um, the estate tax versus the death tax. All right. So uh, this is where people actually uh, choose to frame the same exact kind of tax in two different ways. One, a pejorative way designed to force opposition and one in a more neutral way, estate tax, right? Death tax sounds really bad and it makes, the, it makes this taxation look really bad. That frame in and of itself changes your interpretation of the exact same content of legislation. And there've been studies to show that reactions that people have, depending on which that's framed, they see it as quite different and see, you know, the death tax as, you know, something like the Death Star and Lord Vader is going to come, right? Uh, whereas the estate tax, well, that just kind of seems rather benign. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to run through a few different examples to uh, show you a bit of what I'm talking about. So what, uh, a bit of what we mean here, the names or shorthand expressions we give to uh, uh, specific parts of the Constitution or to constitutional concepts are really what I'm, I'm, I'm focused on in this book. I've given you the takings clause example. I've told you why they're extra textual. You know that they're not in there. Um, uh, we, there's a lot we can learn from advertising literature about labeling constitutional products. One law professor, when I gave a, a, a talk uh, the same fall, but not, he wasn't there at this talk and he's, he's not from uh, Georgetown, uh, but at, an, at another Georgetown Center for the Constitution meeting that we had, um, this one professor suggested, maybe you should call it Mad Men Meets the Constitution, your book, right? Uh, after the TV show, which is uh, some of you may have seen, uh, and about advertising uh, executives. So the idea is that we use this in ways to sort of advertise and, and tell people what's, what's inside the product, what's inside the cereal box, what's inside the, the, the constitutional provision box. So we're going to be labeling all these different things. And I'm, I'm really trying to explore a number of different questions. Where and when did labels come from? This was important because this, this will tell you sort of the trajectory of the book. The book started with, all right, I wrote this article about the takings clause. 
And then I realized at Randy Barnett's suggestion uh, that I should do an entire book on, on labels across the board and constitutional discourse. And um, so we were sitting down at breakfast one time and I was telling you about the Takings Clause project and from there the book blossoms. So I really owe it to Randy, uh, Professor Barnett for, for giving me the, the motivation to, to move into a full scale book on, on, uh, on these things wide, widely. Um, so, but, but when I was first doing the Takings Clause project, I had to ask myself an important question. Look, if I'm going to actually say that this matters, maybe I should figure out when did people first start using it, right? Because um, if, it's, if the founders were using these labels, then maybe that actually tells us something about interpretation because they were doing emphasis framing themselves designed to push us in a particular interpretive direction. Uh, maybe if it came up later, I learned something else. Strikingly um, uh, interesting uh, uh, evidence came out of this. Um, I'll give you just the takings clause story and then we'll talk about some other uh, clauses in, in the slides after this. So the takings clause story shocked me. Um, I, I would, I would, so let me ask you, I'm going to take the share screen off for a minute. I'm going to ask how many of you to, some of you may already know this question because you've either read portions of things I have out there or um, because uh, you've been told, but um, how many of you think that the takings clause was used? I know not everyone has their screen up, so we're really just going to have to do the six of you that actually are showing your faces. Um, how many of you uh, think that the takings clause was a label that we used at the founding? How many think it was something we used prior to 1900? All right. How many of you think it was something that didn't get used until 1955? All right, good answer. All right, so, so, so this was the shocking part. The shocking part was there's no longstanding provenance for the takings clause label. The first time any, any court used it, any court of any kind, state or federal, was in 1955 in the Court of Claims. The first time the Supreme Court ever labeled anything the takings clause, and they actually left off the S. The first time the Supreme Court ever used it, they called it the taking clause, not the takings clause. A year later, they switched to takings clause. No idea why. Um, uh, but in, in any case, that wasn't until 1978 in the Penn Central case. Uh, so it, this labeling phenomenon is actually really, really new. And, and what I wanted to explore in the book is how new is it for other things? And it turns out it's really new for other things too. Our, our normal discussion that we would have in constitutional discourse in, in Supreme Court opinions and elsewhere would be the clause which provides. And then they would give full language of the clause which provides, which would actually give greater emphasis to focusing on looking at the language as a whole. Um, so uh, this, in fact, is leading, you know, may lead to, I have to admit, may lead to a critique of clause by clause analysis that originalism often offers. That is, maybe we're a little too clause centric in originalism because of the fact that there, there wasn't so much clause dependent discussion going on um, early on. We can, we can add that, that discussion a little bit more in the, in the Q&A. Um, so, uh, so I, I realized that um, the, the takings clause was one of these things that came up really late. Um, are there competing labels? Do we call things other things? What are the difference between, differences between the labels? Are the labels adopted strategically or are they just because of efficiency of a shared vocabulary? Um, does, do labels change over time? Uh, and does the label drive the interpretation or does the interpretation drive the label? Uh, we're not going to have time to discuss all these things, but I'll just give you kind of a sense of um, some of the uh, questions that the book is trying to raise. I'll leave those up there for just a minute while I talk about one which I think is important to all of you. That is, why are labels sticky? When I say sticky, is I mean they stick around, right? That once you start using them, they tend to stick. 
Uh, part of it is because all of you are in law school taking classes from people who all use the same labels. And in fact, all across the country, we have people using the same labels. And I'm going to uh, try to convince you that some of those labels are at, at best um, uh, inaccurate or incomplete in a way that could have a potential deleterious effect on a robust evaluation of the content of the label itself. So uh, one, one that, uh, if, if, if some of you are in uh, Professor Barnett's uh, con law class, you may already have talked about the due process clause versus the due process of law clause, uh, the due process of law. So most professors across the country call it the due process clause, uh, but that they leave off the of law. Well, if you believe of law has substantive content, that is that, that one cannot be deprived of anything other than law, cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, meaning that it not only has to have, you have to have due process, but it has to be due process effectuated by a valid law that is a non-arbitrary uh, law that, that it, you know, passes the, sort of the, the, the fundamental minimums of what constitutes a valid and legitimate and um, you know, justifiable law, rather than just legislation. If you believe a law has additional uh, content, then you might need, you might say leaving it off forces people, or, excuse me, does not force people to ask the question, what does of law do? If you leave due process of law in, it's not only more textually complete, but it is um, uh, perhaps uh, going to lead you to a more, more uh, complete discussion of, of what each word within the label means. Let me give you another one that's really sticky, I think, in all classrooms, and that's Commerce Clause, uh, when we're talking about the interstate aspects of Commerce Clause. So you could, there are sort of three competing labels here. There are more. Uh, I actually learned uh, for the first time at my talk here in 2018 to a group of students that in India, what we call the Commerce Clause, they call the Free Trade Clause, even though it has exactly the same uh, basic content in their constitution. And so that label was quite different and, and that was new to me. So that's one of the things I learned by this kind of forum. So I hope I'll, I'll get a few more tidbits like that to take away with me today. Um, but uh, think of this, the Commerce Clause. Uh, most of you learn that your textbooks have it called the Commerce Clause rather than the Interstate Commerce Clause. If you keep the Interstate Commerce Clause in there, then you're more likely to ask, well, what extra work does that word interstate actually do? Uh, if you take it out and it's just about the Commerce Clause, then you think that this clause is about the power over commerce more generally when it's not. That's the broad interpretation of constitutional law that goes far beyond um, the, the, the understood limits that the word interstate uh, injects into the constitutional provision. So it's far more fidelitous to the constitutional text to call it the interstate commerce clause than the commerce clause. I, I contend, and I'll show you in a minute that I'm, I'm like the only one in the world uh, who, who goes around using this, I prefer to call it the commerce among the several states clause. It's far more textually complete. It's more textually accurate. Um, it's a little harder to, and longer to say. It's not quite as efficient, uh, but it is more uh, fidelitous to the actual text of the constitution. I'm gonna show you a graph in a minute to show you that no court has ever adopted that. When all of you become judges, you can be the first to do that. In all of your papers, you can start to do that. But the thing is, I, I'm trying to get, one of my audiences for this book is law professors and law students to get them to at least make students aware that they may have subconscious effects, subconscious framing effects from the choices of the labels that are being used. And that we shouldn't just continue to use the labels because that's how we learn in law school. But instead we should figure out what is the, what's the more appropriate label to actually use. So, um, uh, I've talked to you about the rights protective clauses of the constitution are not called by powers. They're called by the, 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 you know, we typically uh, adopt labels that talk about the um, actual uh, right protected rather than the deprivation or the, or the power uh, that's here, despite the fact that you can censor some things, you can abridge some speech, you, you know, there's just, there's limits on it. Um, so instead we give sort of emphasis to all of that. 
So the point is the labels we, uh, the frames we create by the labels we choose have an impact on the substance of the objects they frame. And, you know, this is, this is, you see this in art magazines and, 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 you know, you can, you can learn it in psycholinguistics too, but you can just as much talk to people who curate at museums who take great care in deciding how to put the, uh, uh, what labels to put on what art. If you believe law has an expressive function, then you believe that some of this matters. And, um, uh, just sort of one quick, uh, to make sure we're all talking on the same page during the Q&A, what do I think about, what do I mean by labels? Um, I like this getting Karen quote, most, and this is mainly about emphasis labeling, which is the primary focus of the book, that is the words we choose to put into the label emphasize what we care about most in the constitutional provision. Um, the most prevailing facet of framing is to direct attention to some aspects while suppressing others. And so you suppress others by not including them. You, you, you direct attention to the other aspects by including them uh, that, that will enhance a particular interpretation and eventually result in a specific response. Different frames evidently direct attentional resources to different aspects by cueing the system toward one or the other attribute. Uh, frames provide cues to infer the categorical identity of a perceived object or an event. Different categories may imply different reference points and different criteria for evaluation. So we are, we are directing attention to particular points. We are emphasizing when we choose the labels. We think that they're really just sort of efficient shorthands that we all get used to. And it's like, oh yeah, it's the Commerce Clause. It's, it's, the, it's the Due Process Clause. It's the Equal Protection Clause without really thinking about are we actually communicating some additional information or failing to communicate important information by choosing to use one label over the other? Um, so uh, as I said, I'm primary, primarily talking about emphasis frame, framing. There is some equivalence framing in the book. Um, this should not be all that new to you. Lawyers, you, you are learning this in your writing classes, right? You have to frame your arguments in your briefs. Uh, lawyers get that all the time and they understand why it's going to matter to the judges. Politicians do it. I've given you some examples of that and marketers do it. Um, politics, uh, death tax versus estate tax, pro-life versus anti-choice, right? You see that going on in, on, on your screen right now. You, you watch any uh, news show where a candidate comes up that you can see exactly different language being used for the same uh, positions, depending on whether or not you want to uh, demonize your, your, or, or make your opponent look bad or you want to make your opponent look like they have some kind of principled stance. Um, politicians don't tax and spend, they invest in the country, they make investments in the future, right? Um, th these are all ways in which you, they're trying to manipulate how you view what they're trying to pass off. Um, so uh, there's a lot uh, that I could talk about. We can talk about um, uh, various um, aspects of the social science literature, but I'm going to sort of skip over that to just say the history of constitutional labels is, is uh, I think, really important. It's important at the very least from a historical perspective, from a uh, understanding of plain meaning uh, that we were not using labels for most of, most of, our, um, uh, most of our time together. So the, um, I, I thought the chart was up here and I apologize that it's not, but the basic idea is that for, for the vast majority of constitutional content, the corpus linguistics and other research has revealed that labels were not used at the founding other than for one clause, the sweeping clause. And the reason why the sweeping clause, which you, you probably know is the necessary and proper clause, uh, we had a label for it, is because there was a pre-existing label in contract law, uh, which, which was adopted by some in a somewhat pejorative way to identify the, the necessary and proper clause. But other than that, and there's a few, a few very few mentions of it in the, um, in the Federalist Papers and other places, 
Uh, other than that, the framers didn't use any, any labels. You can look at all Supreme Court opinions and a variety of other corpuses uh, across uh, time, and really no labels were being used uh, prior to the Civil War. Uh, so labeling is a new phenomenon. It is, it is not something which um, has generally occurred. And I think, I, I give it sort of a thought experiment. Let's say labeling was happening back in uh, the founding. If, and this is sort of the bottom, this is at the bottom of the screen. For example, what if during the ratification or early post-ratification era, uh, what we often refer to today as the contracts clause had been given what I'm calling a textually augmented label, like the private contracts clause by those who believed it only applied to private contracts or the public contracts clause for those who believed otherwise. There's little doubt that you would see people using that label to argue for the interpretation of its scope. They would say, look, they called it the private contracts clause, even though the private isn't in the constitution, that's what they meant it to, that's where they meant the scope limitation to be. Um, that wasn't happening, that's important in and of itself to know. Uh, if you believe that had they used it, it would have been used in constitutional interpretation to try and identify the scope, then you should believe that the labels today are, are, could be used in the same way, even if uh, not always uh, directly consciously. Um, so, in your, you know, here's some things that the book is studying in ways that we can talk about this. Uh, due process versus due process clause versus liberty clause. Liberty clause has only been used once in the Supreme Court by Justice Stevens in the McDonald case uh, to characterize this. And that was one case where there was clearly a strategic label chosen. I've talked to you about some of the other examples. So uh, I'm gonna wrap up by just giving you the categories that I use in the book. Um, and I'm, if you have ideas of others, they may be in the book or they might not, this is not an exhaustive list here, uh, but textually imprecise labels. Sometimes we just don't use the exact language, but we kind of come close. Takings, for example, taken is in the constitution. Textually selective labels. So faithful execution clause versus take care clause versus execution clause versus execution of the laws clause. Notice you could choose different things from the exact same clause to identify this, and they have different outcomes. Faithful execution includes that word faithful, right? So it emphasizes the fact that there has to be this faithful execution. It, it qualifies the duty. It doesn't just say you have to execute. The more stripped down execution clause uh, seems rather incomplete because it doesn't have this qualifier, uh, but, and, and you could go on with the take care clause and other things. Um, textually augmented labels, the fugitive slave clause and the spending clause. There's, there's no spending clause in the constitution, uh, but the, 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 the government often justifies, legislators often justify their spending, their sometimes reckless spending by saying, oh, well, we have authority under the spending clause. And then it is, oh, you have a spending clause. I didn't know that. Oh, now I see that that's a legitimate exercise of government power. It's not, right? There's nothing that actually, by the late, by providing the label, it starts to justify the existence of this, of this power and the, and the narrative that this is a legitimate way to exercise. Instead of saying, okay, let's look at the taxation clause power and figure out what then our limitations on, you know, tied to it in a, in a more complete analysis there. Uh, functional labels are uh, similar to, you know, what, what kind of function do things do? We can have editorial choice in labels. Um, these are some that I've already talked to you about. Um, one that I want to uh, uh, um, mention really fast is, um, is going to come up in just a sec, and that's the uh, progress clause. So um, let me just uh, uh, tell you a couple things um, about the, this, hold on one sec, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, so the, 
let me just stop the share. So the, the, the point here is, is um, we can put these in a variety of different ways in which the labels are used. We can start to uh, create categories uh, where the labels are used. One of the things I want to um, uh, stress is that um, none of this is, uh, is, is a longstanding practice. And for that reason, it is not, it doesn't have sort of some kind of historical, um, uh, uh, you know, long-standing historical basis. Um, is, the, is the share up right now, the screen? Okay. Um, so with that, um, I think I'll take your questions. Uh, let, me, let me just give you one other example, because some of you may be working in the IP space. Um, strategic labels, instead of labels chosen for, uh, for efficiency of language. One strategic label that is clearly out there right now is the progress clause. And so this is uh, one that is being used by some scholars to say that uh, this prefatory language in the intellectual property provisions in the Constitution, the copyright and, and patent uh, 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 protection clauses, um, that, those, that that language is somehow a limit that you have to, in order to get a property right in intellectual property, you have to prove that you're actually going to make progress with it. Instead of saying that we grant the rights in order to further progress, right? The, right, the granting of the rights themselves further progress. And so it's really just telling you what's the reason for granting the rights in the constitution. It's not saying that there's this extra layer of, of, uh, of, um, that must be met in, before you can actually uh, go forward. So if that's the case, then um, uh, we see these scholars using progress clause as a means to try and say, no, this is an actual limitation. They're emphasizing this word progress and arguing that it is only to further progress. And so if you can't prove you're furthering progress, you don't get any intellectual property rights guaranteed by the constitution. Uh, clear strategic use. The other big strategic use, one that will, that's discussed in a chapter in the book, um, uh, is was the most of the corpus and historical work was done already by Gerard uh, Magliosha for me in a, in a book called The Heart of the Constitution, uh, which I recommend to all of you, and that's the Bill of Rights. So we all call we all walk around call, talking about the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights. Um, and uh, as it turns out, uh, as as uh, Professor Magliosha points out, the uh, the label, the collective label for the first ten amendments of the Bill of Rights uh, was not adopted by anyone, even the founders. And, uh, it was not adopted by anyone until a couple instances that you can find post-Civil War. And then it really wasn't, though, brought into use until Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And FDR used it for two purposes. One was to justify the New Deal because he said, you will always have your Bill of Rights. So this is, FDR is the one who put it in the National Archives. FDR is the one who, um, who created Bill of Rights Day. FDR you know, had all these ways in which he used this to say, don't worry about the New Deal and all this new big governmental power because you'll always have your Bill of Rights. And it was a concentrated advertising campaign for the New Deal that led us to start calling the first 10 amendments the Bill of Rights. Um, true, at the founding, there was a deal uh, brokered. And, and, it, and we said, look, we, we uh, you know, the founder said, um, and Madison agreed to draft a bill of rights in order to uh, satisfy those people who were weary of the constitution on uh, not having these kinds of rights protections. And so there was this idea that some people thought we don't need a bill of rights, other people thought we did. Madison said, fine, we'll draft a bill of rights. 
After that, Madison drafted 10 amendments, but Madison never called them the Bill of Rights. He never called them a Bill of Rights. He just called them the 10 amendments. Um, and neither did anyone else, in part because this sort of clamor for a Bill of Rights went away. And so the first 10 amendments were called the first 10 amendments for most of our history. It was not until the 1930s that they started being called the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights. Um, in fact, there's different portions of the Constitution that some people called a Bill of Rights. And, you know, the, the ex post facto provisions and the contract clause provisions were, were called a Bill of Rights and not the first 10 amendments. You can find publications from the government in the 19, you know, in the 1920s and early 1930s that still have in their table of contents first 10 amendments. They don't call it the Bill of Rights, right? They label them in these books. So that was a strategic use of a label to try and change the narrative of the kind of project that's happening in the first 10 amendments. And it, make, it elevates them to this different kind of status by using that label. There's, I could go on with examples for, for hours, uh, but I would rather hear your questions. So that's, that's the project. Those are some examples. And um, I'm, I'm curious and excited to hear anything that you all have to say. For inviting me to, to speak to you all. Uh, Elaine and I were chatting uh, beforehand, and I was thinking of my experience uh, back when I was in law school in the Stone Age back in 1998, and uh, I, I've always been interested in originalism, and where I really first became uh, interested enough to want to pursue it for the subsequent 22 years was when I took my first constitutional law class, and some of you are in constitutional law, some of you may have had Professor Barnett, and I don't know what your experience is like, I suspect it's different than mine, Mine, I think, was, it is probably still still uh, fairly uh, generalizable, which is, I was stunned to see that uh, we uh, read uh, uh, about 100% of our time on Supreme Court opinions about what the Constitution meant, and about 0% of our time about what the Constitution actually said, or its text, or its structure, or its history. And, uh, and so that put me on, on a goal to see, well, is there more information than just what the Supreme Court says? And one of the ways in which I tried to, to gather that information, because back in the, in the bad old days of the 90s, uh, when originalism was not really a thing, unlike today with uh, Judge Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, uh, where originalism is a thing, and some people think it's great, some people think it's bad, um, one of the ways that I would be able to find out more about originalism was I would invite speakers in through the Federal Society. And Professor Barnett was somebody who I invited uh, back way back in 1999 and he had either he had just published or it was in the draft process of being published uh, his his first major article on originalism, which was an originalist an originalism for non originalists. And it was his uh, it was semi autobiographical. It was him describing he had been a originalism skeptic and how he became an originalist. And then you see that fully fleshed out in his really important book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, from a few years later. And so it was great because I had Professor Barnett come in. Uh, he did a debate against one of my kind of law professors. I thought he won hands down. But even more important was I had all these questions that I had been storing up uh, in my constitutional law class that my professor just didn't really care about. And when I did ask some of them, I didn't think that the answers were, um, that they were satisfactory, in part because I don't think the professor was just sympathetic, like those questions are lame. And so I, I, was, I had a chance to ask Professor Barnett all these questions. So the poor guy I picked him up from the airport and I'm sure he was thinking, this guy's asking a lot of questions. So I, on the way back to the airport, on the way from the airport, and, I, and I was, it, was, it was great because uh, I had all these thoughts uh, stored up, and some of them I could tell uh, were clearly not sound ideas. And he had really powerful responses that I thought, well, that's not, I'm not gonna pursue that anymore. But then there were other things that, that he seemed to, to be open to and thought those were sound ideas. And, uh, and so originalism has been the, the continued pursuit from that first class where 
we just didn't talk about the Constitution's text at all. And so one of the neat things about the center is that you all get the opportunity to have, I, I saw your list of speakers, which is amazing. Uh, lots of different aspects of originalism, lots of different things that are core of originalism, uh, some on the periphery of originalism. And I would just have loved to have that opportunity when I was a student uh, 22 years ago. And in fact, I was at the center uh, as a fellow, as a faculty fellow uh, back in 2015, I think it was. And the first draft of this book was written while I was a faculty fellow there. And it was, it was great to have uh, Professor Barnett and Professor Larry Solomon was there at the time uh, to work with and, and ask questions about as I was, I was working through it. So I'm looking forward to uh, kind of being back at the center, at least virtually, so to speak. And so, Elena, you had said for me to speak for maybe 25 minutes or so and then open up for Q&A. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to everybody's questions and comments. I'm going to start maybe with, with what may seem kind of odd to you. And how many of you have experienced this, this uh, situation? You're driving along, it's a divided four-lane highway, and you're, you're, you're in a traffic jam. And then you look in your passenger mirror, and you see some guy pull off on the side onto the shoulder, and you know he's going to like speed by you. So I've experienced that on a couple of occasions. In fact, one time when I was doing a draft of this talk, which relies on, you'll see the argument I'm going to make, somebody did that to me, and I actually took a picture of it and used it uh, in the talk that I was there. And if you're like me, when you see that person pulling out, uh, what, do you, what do you think about that person? I think that person's not a good person. Or what do you say about that person? Sometimes if my kids aren't in the car, uh, there'll even be like some choice words that utter from my mouth. And uh, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to describe is uh, a situation where you have somebody who uh, is uh, violating the law, but at least at first blush doesn't appear to be hurting anybody else. And in fact, if you were to ask the driver, hey, what are you doing, buddy? He could, he could reasonably say, I'm getting to my destination in a more efficient manner. So, so there's a good that comes out of this and nobody else is worse off. And what I'm gonna to argue today is that this aggr aggressive driver it acted unethically. And it's not because driving on the pavement's inherently unethical, it's because he acted illegally. He broke the law. And in doing so, my argument's going to be, the aggressive driver harmed both himself and his fellow citizens because he took for himself an opportunity that the legal system had not allocated to him, which is just a passenger car driving, but instead had said was reserved for emergency vehicles or, or emergencies only. So how does that relate to the Constitution? What I'm going to argue is that just like our aggressive driver who hurt himself and his fellow citizens by violating the law, a federal judge who misinterprets the Constitution, who doesn't use originalism, also hurts himself and the judge's fellow citizens. So that's going to be the, the bird to my argument today. So this afternoon, I'm going to uh, describe what I think are the three main contributions from originalism's promise to originalist theory. And my impression is that many of you have already been introduced to originalism, so I'm not going to describe originalism in a general way. I'm just going to talk about what are the three, I think, most important contributions of this book to originalist theory. And, and here are the, the three. First, I'm going to talk about my originalist theory of precedent, which has been a long-standing area of controversy and debate within originalism. Second, I'm going to talk about my theory of judicial virtue, so the kind of characteristics that judges need to have in order to be excellent originalist judges. And then third, and this is really the, the I think the key payoff of the book, is my natural law justification for originalism. As Elena, I said, I'm going to speak for about 25 minutes. A lot of things I can't talk about. I'm happy to, I'm looking forward to our conversation because uh, both about questions or comments or criticisms of what I'm going to say, 
but also things maybe that I wasn't able to cover in our, in our time. And on my faculty webpage, I've got a whole bunch of, uh, of my articles that are online, uh, just as one example. Uh, one of the articles, and it's part of the book as well, is about how does originalism respond to the challenge of changed social circumstances? And you can go there and download those for free uh, in, in your spare time. You know, we were talking before, just mentioning before that this is uh, another time of confirmation hearings. And uh, back in 1998, originalism was really exotic that most law schools didn't have an originalist scholar. Uh, originalism on the Supreme Court was uh, relatively rare. You had two justices, Scalia and Thomas, who had articulated originalism to some degree. But today it's a different story, uh, both on the, the, uh, the uh, Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. But my favorite, uh, this was a couple years ago, of course, when Justice Gorsuch was being uh, confirmed, that uh, Cosmo, which is an art, a magazine I do not read, I don't know anything about it, to be honest with you, uh, but, but somebody had sent it to me and I thought to myself, if Cosmo is writing about originalism, originalism has really kind of come a long way, baby. And so this is really the best time to be an originalist, at least since the New Deal. So my three steps this afternoon is I'm gonna explain originalism and my, my unique contribution, which is the theory of precedent. Second, I'm going to describe the natural law tradition with its two key facets. One is natural law and one is virtue ethics. And then second, I'm going to apply that natural law tradition to the American constitution and argue that originalism is the best theory of interpretation. First, natural law requires positive law to secure the common good of American society and individual human flourishing. The Constitution is our society's positive law means to secure the common good, and originalism is the meaning that allows the Constitution to achieve that positive law, natural law outcome of, of securing the common good. And then second, virtue ethics is necessary to help judges become excellent judges who can, who can help the machine of originalism, help the enterprise of originalism stay true to its principles uh, and, uh, and pursue the common good. So, Originalism arose in the early 1970s uh, in response to the excesses of the Warren and Burger courts. Judge Bork was an early figure. This is him from his confirmation hearings uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, today, originalism uh, has a lot of different flavors out there. Uh, the, the, the version of originalism that I advocate is called public meaning originalism, and it's the most common version of originalism. I'm gonna talk about a few other versions as we go along. When you think of a public meaning originalism, it's the public meaning of the text when it was ratified is the, is the authoritative meaning. And uh, be, because I think you've probably been exposed to originalism in, in this fashion enough, I'm not gonna go into detail about how one uncovers the original meaning, although I'm certainly happy to talk about it. And, and, and the first part of my book does go into detail. I think the, the kind of neat thing about my description of originalism when it comes to original meaning or original intent or original understanding, original methods, is that I, as, I'm, as I argue that substantively, from the perspective of the Constitution as a mechanism of communication, which is my perspective, is the natural law perspective of the Constitution, that those different versions of originalism aren't distinct. They're just looking at different facets to the originalist communicative enterprise. And I'm happy to talk about that as well. If you're looking for, I think, a, an example of where originalism is really done well, um, one of my favorite examples, and this is one that I came across actually in law school and that I've been looking re repeatedly at as a scholar, is the, is the debate over the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. And Professor Barnett has a series of three articles, uh, one from 2001, one from 2003, and then one from 2012, where he goes through uh, different uh, tools to evaluate the Constitution's original meaning. So if you're looking for a place to see how it's done well, I think you look at those three articles and you get a good rounded picture of it. 
And in particular, I think the second article, the one from 2003 is really interesting because there Professor Barnett uses, I think the newest tool, uh, he was using it in 2003, but originals have been uh, now bringing it to the fore over the last couple of years called Corpus Linguistics, which is computer assisted research techniques. And he does, he uses that, uh, this, it's the first use of it actually, uh, back in 2003. So as I said, I'm not gonna go into detail on this topic about how you do originalism, but I'm gonna spend my time on this part of description talking about my originalist theory of precedent. So I've talked just briefly about original meaning originalism, but critics could reasonably ask, ours is a common law system in which star decisis plays a really prominent role. And so far, I haven't said anything about, about star decisis, and it doesn't seem like there's a place for star decisis in the description that I've given. I haven't said anything about precedent. And in fact, critics have plausibly argued that originalism's commitment to following the original meaning means that originalism's adoption would, would require overruling a lot of non-originalist precedent with resulting instability. So you'd have all this legal instability and harm to reliance interests. And I think one of the most powerful examples is the legal tender cases. They were a series of cases after the Civil War where the Supreme Court said that under Article I, Section 8, uh, the power to coin money, that clause, that that included the power to make legal tender paper money. Um, I think that the best interpretation of, of the power to coin money actually means that Congress only has the power to create metallic tokens because of the reasons at the time, which we don't need to go into here. And so if you assume that that's correct, and that legal tender cases therefore are non-originalist precedents, then a critic could argue, I mean, we need to overrule the legal tender cases and that the paper money in the United States and around the world is illegal and therefore of no value. That would be dramatically destabilizing. That's the critic's perspective. And really to make matters worse, Justice Thomas pictured here, I think metaphorically saying stop to start decisis in uh, the uh, Gamble case, the uh, Gamble versus US case from last year, issued a concurrence where he said with a, with a, with a small caveat, originalism requires overruling all non-originalist precedent. And in fact, that's the view I would say of a substantial minority of originalist scholars out there. And it has, it has a lot to commend it, though as it wouldn't be the view of a substantial minority of scholars. But that's not my view, it's not the one I defend in my book. So what I argue in the book is that originalism actually requires significant respect for precedent, both originalist and non-originalist. And so that there's a privileged place for precedent within originalism. And I, I make that argument because I argue that the constitution itself, its original meaning itself requires federal judges to give significant respect to precedent. Well, where's that come from? It comes from article three, the judicial power that federal judges exercise. And in the book, and in some previous scholarship, I went through the historical evidence, starting back in merry old England, colonial America, revolutionary America, the framing ratification, and then post-ratification practice by the federal courts. And what I described was the widespread understanding, in other words, the public meaning that judicial power includes a requirement of giving significant respect to precedent. And I'll just give you one data point out of a whole bunch. During the run-up to the adoption of the Constitution, you all know that there were the Anti-Federalists don't adopt the Constitution and the Federalists adopt the Constitution. And Brutus, one of the most prominent Anti-Federalists, was focusing on Article 3. It was, it, was, it was Letter 15, I think. And what he said was, we don't want to adopt this Article 3 because you'll have federal judges who will interpret the Constitution capaciously. In other words, give the federal government uh, more power than it actually deserves, put that in a precedent, and then in the next case, refer to the precedent, expand it a little bit more. And he what he basically described was what we today would call precedential drift over time. 
But the premise of his criticism, which he didn't defend, is that federal judges would create and be bound by constitutional precedent. But on the flip side, Alexander Hamilton writing in Federalist, uh, I think it was Federalist, Federalist uh, 78, I think that's the one, um, he was responding to Burgess's argument and he made lemonade out of those lemons. His argument was, you're right, he didn't, he didn't defend the premise, he assumed, just like Brutus, that federal judges would create uh, non-originalist precedent and precedent, uh, originalist precedent and be bound by it, but he said that was a good thing because Starr decides this is valuable for the rule of law and we want judges to make a lot of precedent. But the key point is that on both sides, they, they used as a premise for other arguments the assumption that federal judges would create and be bound by non-originalist precedent. So then what I argue is in the book that federal judges have this commitment to precedent. And what that means is that when they face a, an originalist precedent, they need to follow it. So if you look on the left-hand side of this very simplified originalist decision tree, on the top is, is there a precedent? Yes. Is the precedent originalist? The answer is yes, then you follow it. And, and so, uh, a, a, an originalist precedent is a precedent that correctly interpreted and applied the Constitution. And if that's what a new judge, if that's what a federal judge is facing, then the federal, federal judge is required by judicial power to follow it. Now, what if the precedent's non-originalist? What I argue is that when a federal judge is faced with a non-originalist precedent, the judge has to take into account three uh, variables, three factors. The first factor is how much of a deviation is this precedent from the original meaning? So if it's a great deviation, that puts pressure on the judge to overrule it. Second, would overruling the precedent harm rule of law values? So if it's like the legal tender cases, that would be a, be a strong reason to not overrule the precedent because of the dramatic harm to rule of law values. Third, and I think this is most, most controversially, most controversial, I'm happy to talk about why I included this factor, is the precedent, even though it's incorrect, just? And so judges will be taking into account their own conception of what's just and using that to evaluate whether to follow or not follow a non-originalist precedent. So the key payoff here is that unlike what critics argue, and I think unlike, frankly, what Justice Thomas argues, the first question that a federal judge should ask in every case is, is there precedent? So, so originalism on this conception is very precedent focused. And one of the reasons why I think that's valuable is because, as you know from being in law school, Precedent's the name of the game in the American legal practice. We do that all the time. And if you had a theory of interpretation that paid no attention to that or tried to exclude some huge chunk of that, that would be really problematic. Okay, so I've talked a little bit about how we do originalism. I've spent some time on the theory of originalist precedent. Now let me spend some time and move over to my natural law justification for originalism. But let me set the table. There are currently, I think, four main arguments out there for why we should do originalism. And I'm just gonna list them here. I'm not gonna defend them or explain them. Happy to talk about them later because of time constraints. The first one is popular sovereignty. Keith Whittington from Princeton first articulated this argument. And the basic idea is that if we consistently follow originalism, the American people's popular sovereignty will be enhanced. Second, good consequences. This comes from John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport in their book, The Good Constitution, which is an excellent book. And they argue that because of the Article V amendment process and the initial adoption process, which requires supermajorities, that the resulting original meaning is going to be good and lead to good consequences. Third is natural rights. This comes from Professor Barnett in his, in his awesome book, Restoring the Lost Constitution. And he argues that the original meaning is very rights protective 
And so therefore, if federal judges follow it, if we follow original meaning, then we'll have robust protection for natural rights. The last one, original law originalism is new. I would say a couple of years old now. And this is a, this is a creative argument. Um, and what these scholars argue is that they make two moves. First, originalism is our law. That if you look at the, at the legal system the right way, if you look at its fundamental commitments, if you look at what judges really say, you see that despite cases like Wicked versus Philbird, or um, uh, um, depending on your perspective, Roe versus Wade and other cases, originalism really is our law that's governing most of what the Supreme Court does. And then the second part of the move, and this is why it's a, also a normative justification, is that because federal officials like judges take an oath to support the Constitution, that's the normative justification for why judges should follow originalism. It's our law, and they take an oath to support the law, therefore they're taking an oath to support originalism. Now, of course, I haven't defended any of these views, I'm gonna defend my own view in a second, but what these scholars are trying to answer is the question which I'm also trying to answer, which is why should we follow the original meaning if it leads to a bad result? Or why can't the original meaning just be one factor among many that judges use in their interpretive calculus? What these scholars are arguing is that when you follow the original meaning, you get more popular sovereignty, better consequences, uh, more protection for natural rights, or faithfulness to one's oath. Now, these are the arguments that, that these originalists are giving. So what I'm gonna do is move over to my justification for originals, which I think is the key contribution of this book. I'm gonna do first is, summarize the natural law tradition, and then apply it to the Constitution. So the natural law tradition, it's huge. And there's lots of different views about it. There's, there's conflicting views about it. I think there's caricatures of it. So don't be surprised if some of my description today doesn't fit with, with what you've heard maybe in the past. The natural law tradition has its origin in Greek thought. Uh, it was given mature form by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. And in the Anglo-American world, John Finnis at Oxford, Robert George at Princeton, and many other scholars have advocated for, defined, and explained natural law tradition in the Anglo-American legal system. The natural law tradition has a lot of different aspects. I'm gonna just focus on two. One is natural law and one is virtue ethics. Natural law and virtue ethics are two tools, two mechanisms, two means by which we are guided towards our end, which is human happiness or flourishing. And so the goal of both natural law and virtue ethics is to help us achieve human happiness. And these two mechanisms exist because of our nature, because of the kind of beings that we are. Not regardless of our time period we live in, regardless of our religion, of our race, of our class, of our gender, the claim by natural lawyers is that these natural law components apply to us just because and, be, and because we're human. Natural law is an external guide, it's a rule to help us uh, achieve happiness. And virtue ethics, as I'm gonna describe, is an internal inclination. It's a type of character that helps us achieve our happiness. So let me first talk about natural law. Natural law is a collection of laws, of rules and principles that guide us to happiness. They tell us what actions will make us happy and what actions will make us unhappy. And they're natural because they apply to us as human beings with a human body and, a, and depending on your perspective, a human soul. And so different laws would apply to us if we have different natures. So one of the natural law norms is to uh, engage in a reasonable amount of leisure. So take leisure time. And that applies to us because we have a kind of uh, facility, a human body that requires rest in order to recuperate. And these natural laws are laws because they direct, they instruct us to uh, do certain things and avoid other things. They instruct us to do good things and avoid certain bad things. And these good things are called basic human goods. They're, they include things like life 
and friendship and leisure and knowledge. They're the things that make life worth living. And the natural law says that we should pursue those things and don't pursue their opposites. You're studying law at Georgetown. And the fundamental reason you're studying law at Georgetown is because Georgetown law provides you with a basic human good called knowledge. So let me ask you to step back for a moment and reflect on your own reasoning process. What I'm trying to describe is the basic human goods are the answers you give yourself when you ask yourself, why am I doing something? So why are you doing this? Why are you taking Professor Barnett's constitutional law course? Because of the basic human good of knowledge. And there's a faculty of our minds called practical reason that allows us to see these basic human goods. And I think for those of you who are parents, you're probably most of you are too young to be a parent. I'm a parent. And when you ask a parent, in fact, I'm just a parent, uh, what our newest child is a month old. So as a new parent, you're thinking of all the dreams that you have for your child. And if you ask a parent, what do you want for your child? The answers that parents give are the things I'm talking about. They want life and leisure and friends and happiness. Those are the good things that make life worth living. Now compare that to something that's not a basic human good, money. Money isn't a basic human good because it's not an end in itself. It doesn't make humans happy, but it is a means to human good. And what was wrong with Ebenezer Scrooge, the person pictured on the right, that's an older uh, version of Ebenezer Scrooge, was that he wanted money for its own sake. He thought, he acted like it was a basic human good. And he put aside friendship with his nephew Fred, which is a basic human good, and he put aside health of his employee's son, Tiny Tim, which itself is a basic human good as well. And what was right with George Bailey? George Bailey, of course, is the person on the left. The Strand kids have to suffer through watching him every Christmas. What was right with George Bailey was that he put aside money and many other things for the good of friendship with his family and with his community. Those, those basic human goods are the things that the natural law directs us to pursue. The second key component of the natural law tradition is virtue ethics. While the natural law provides external guidance, pursue these goods, avoid their opposite, the virtue ethics provides us with descriptions about what kind of character, what kind of people we need to be to be able to pursue those goods effectively. And because of time constraints, I'm just gonna offer two examples to, to explain this concept. So one of the virtues is temperance. And temperance is using material goods in a reasonable amount. And uh, if you're like me, uh, sadly, you probably have a family member or friend that you know of who maybe drinks to excess or uses some material substance to excess. And that intemperance is doubly bad. It's doubly bad because not only does it harm them from whatever the excess of that good is, let's say drinking and becoming drunk, but it harms them because it also prevents them from pursuing the other things that really are good in life. So drinking may be good or bad, um, but it's not fundamentally good like friendship. Or think about judging. And so I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later that there are particular virtues that judges have. We call them the judicial virtues that make judges and judging excellent. And one of them is theoretical wisdom. So the intellectual firepower of a judge to be able to accurately describe uh, a case and the, and, the, and the law governing it. So think about, for example, uh, most of you have had property law probably, and maybe you've had the takings clause. So, so if, you, if you have, you'll know this case, and if you haven't, you'll cover this case. It's a case called Kelo versus New London, Connecticut. And it dealt with what's called the public use clause of the Fifth Amendment takings clause. And the Fifth Amendment limits uh, takings for, quote, a public use. And there's a debate about what public use means in, in American law. And there's also been a debate about what it means, what its original meaning was. And Justice Thomas, in dissent in the Kelo case, I thought, uh, it provided an excellent example of theoretical wisdom, that he had mastered the original meaning of the public use clause through the text, through the structure, through the history, and then also 
through the subsequent originalist and non-originalist press. And he was able to put that all together in an elegant synthesis. That's an example of, I think, theoretical wisdom for judges. So what I've done so far in my natural law argument is I've described the natural law tradition very briefly, natural law and virtue ethics, and both are aimed at human happiness. And I'm going to now apply that tradition to our constitution. So my core claim this afternoon is that the natural law tradition leads to an originalist interpretation of our constitution because originalism leads to the common good of American society and the conditions for which us as individuals are able to pursue our own individual human flourishing. And I'm gonna try and establish this through a two-step move. First, look at law generally, and then second, apply it to the constitution. So first, law generally. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in the natural law tradition, uh, human flourishing is when we live full, happy human lives. I described how we do that through natural law and virtue ethics. But the law plays an important role, and that's going to be the burden of my remarks here. Positive law should encourage human flourishing. And a society whose positive law encourages human flourishing is one that's better than one that doesn't. So, for example, uh, a society that has laws prohibiting arbitrary barriers to access to education, the basic human good of knowledge, like racial barriers, is better than one that doesn't. Human flourishing can only occur if positive law and legal authority overcome what are called coordination problems. Coordination problems are the obstacles to the social cooperation that's necessary for us to be able to pursue our own basic goods. So let's step back for a second and think about all the things that we do together that involve cooperation, that it's so deeply ingrained in us that I think we often don't see it. I'm gonna use the example of highway regulations. Uh, so highway regulations, uh, involve a complex set of interactions that is law-directed and law-governed. And I'll give you two examples. So one comes from the signs that you see on your slide. These are from, from Chile. My wife and I went to Chile a couple years ago, and some of the signs on the left, I got that one, right? The red octagon, I know what it means. But the one on the right, didn't know what that meant. And so it made it hard for me to coordinate with the other Chilean drivers who knew what that sign meant. And so uh, the law, through the, through the mechanism of the signs, uh, was coordinating the Chilean drivers, but wasn't coordinating this, this American guy down there. Another example, uh, one of my sons just became 16. Um, I was teaching him how to drive. Many of you probably remember those days when your parents were teaching you how to drive. We pulled up to a four-way stop. Uh, we were uh, the right driver, the right-hand driver, and the other, there was another driver who pulled up about simultaneously with us. My son didn't know what to do. He didn't know what the law was. He didn't know what the rule was that if two people pull up to the stop sign, the people, the person on the right goes first. And so my son sat there, the other person just sat there, the other person was getting mad, and my son didn't know what to do because he didn't know the law and therefore wasn't able to cooperate with the person next to us. So driving occurs all the time, but it has, it has beneath it this really deep cooperation that's law-governed and law-guided that we don't, we don't even recognize normally. And the, and the coordination problems only increase as the complexity of the good increases. So think about the good of educating young people. A community's education of its young people is, is, a, is a complex process. And so the law governing it, the law coordinating how we do that as a community, as a society, is, co is correspondingly more complex. Okay, so the, how, does, how does the natural law tradition overcome these coordination problems? The natural law tradition says that positive law is the essential tool to overcome coordination problems. And it does so through authoritative, prudential, social ordering decisions. So think of highway regulations. We know that the person on the right is supposed to go first because in our jurisdiction, the state legislature or the Department of Transportation has a statute or rule that's law 
that says that the person on the right goes first. There's an authoritative decision maker. Second, the decisions are prudential. There's not one right answer to most of these questions. So should the person on the right go first or the person on the left? Should people drive on the right-hand side of the road or the left? Should the speed limit be 55 or 65 or 45? There's not one right answer, but the legal decision maker uses his or her prudential judgment to make an all things considered best decision. Third, the decisions coordinate members of society. That, the, that, that my son, once he learned what the law was from me, was able to coordinate his activities with the other driver. And these decisions then allow people to cooperate and overcome coordination problems. These authoritative prudential social ordering decisions, they're legal decisions, because they overcome coordination problems, allow cooperation, and allow people to pursue their human flourishing are the, uh, best, uh, are the best ways uh, for us to be able to pursue our flourishing. And every person in a community is obliged to follow these decisions because they allow us to flourish. So let's step back and think, what would a practically reasonable person think about the law? And my claim here is that if you're practically reasonable, if you're trying to act reasonably, you're trying to pursue your own basic human goods, you're going to see that the legal system is a necessary component both for your own and your fellow citizens' human flourishing. And so let's go back to our aggressive driver. So the aggressive driver pulls on the side, did not follow the law's coordination, and spread, sped past. My claim is that the aggressive driver hurt him or herself and hurt him or her fellow citizens. So the driver hurt himself because he harmed his own participation in fundamental basic human goods of practical reasonableness, justice, and civic friendships. Parts of his own human flourishing, he actually hurt. So let's, let me give you an example. Civic friendship. Civic friendship is the virtue where people in a community wish the best for other people in the community. And that's a, that's a we th typically think of that as citizenship, so that, that even if you don't know somebody, somebody maybe is a, not, not a, not, not, is a stranger to you, the fact that they're fellow Americans, or here, fellow Buckeyes, or uh, I, I mean, out in the country, fellow Richfield Township centerers, means that I should at least will the best for them. It doesn't mean I need to go out of my way to help them, but I should have a disposition to, to help them. And if you are like me, when you see the driver pull on the shoulder and you think ill of that person, you think that person's an a-hole, that's your judgment, I think it's an accurate judgment, that person is acting badly and is therefore hurting himself because he's not acting in your interest, the other driver's interest, he's putting himself first above all other drivers and above emergency vehicles. But the driver also hurts his fellow citizens and himself indirectly because the driver undermines the legal system and that provides the coordination that he needs to flourish. So what's your second thought when you see the driver pulling be, be, uh, alongside you? First thought is, he shouldn't be doing that. Second thought is, I'm gonna do that, right? Because that guy's getting where he wants to go, I wanna get where I wanna go. And what you see is that the, the, the cooperation, the coordination breaks down quickly once people start peeling away and stop co cooperating. Fourth step, this is where originalism enters the picture. Originalism is necessary uh, for people to understand what these authoritative prudential social ordering decisions are. The legal authority has to communicate his or her decision effectively, to, has to communicate legal reasons to the citizens to be able to coordinate their activities. So think of the Chilean speed limit signs or other signs as well, that when I was in Chile, I was unable to cooperate with the fellow, Ch with, my other, with the other Chileans because I didn't know what the, the signs meant. And so I, there was a miscommunication. It was on me at that point, of course, but 
The goal is to have the legal system's reasons co co uh, communicated so everybody can co coordinate. And that understanding of law as communication is an originalist understanding. So let's turn to the Constitution. The Constitution, I argue, is our, our society's solution to fundamental coordination problems. How many branches of government will we have? What, Congress, what powers will Congress have? How long should the president's term of office be? There's not one right answer to any of those questions, but we have to have an answer to all of those questions and many more to have a properly functioning legal system. So our constitution was adopted through means recognized as authoritative. So for those of you who've been to the National Archives, uh, the constitution's up there up front, uh, it's, a, it's a document lying under glass. It's our constitution, not because it's the most beautiful document, uh, it's actually pretty faded, you can barely read it now, not because it's the most normatively attractive document. I think most of us think that at least some parts, maybe many parts, are at least imprudent and maybe unjust. I certainly have that view. The only reason why it's our constitution is because it and only it went through the process by which Americans then and today recognize as identifying our constitution. That's the framing and ratification process. Second, the constitution is the result of numerous prudential judgments. So when you think about the president's term of office, there's not one right answer to how long that term of office should be. Uh, and the framers really grappled with that. So on the one hand, they knew that they didn't want somebody with life tenure. That was the king that didn't work out. On the other hand, they knew they didn't want an executive officer with a really short term of office because when you looked at the uh, independent state governors who typically had a one-year term of office, they had no independence from the legislature and the legislature was basically just overawing them. And so four years wasn't all things considered judgment, long enough to be somewhat independent of Congress, but not too long to be independent of the American people. Third, the constitution coordinated and continues to coordinate members of our society today. All officers take an oath to the constitution, all officers when they act pursuant to the constitution, or I'm sorry, when they act, claim that they are acting pursuant to the constitution. And when you think about different provisions of the constitution, the Constitution, uh, its text, and for a large part, although not exclusively anymore, its original meaning coordinates Americans today. So think of the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause was authorized, I'm sorry, was instituted to authorize Congress to prevent interstate trade disputes, which Congress is able to do uh, today. So here's where originalism enters the picture. Originalism is necessary to understand the Constitution's authoritative prudential social ordering decisions. Let me give an example. Article 4, Section 4, allows the federal government to intervene in the affairs of states in instances of domestic violence. Uh, if we were using originalism, I'm sorry, if we weren't using originalism, we would see that the federal government could intervene using a conventional meaning today, I think basically all the time because of the unfortunate uh, 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 huge amount of spousal abuse, which is a, a synonym today for domestic violence. But that's not what the framers and ratifiers had judged. Instead, they had created a fine-tuned prudential federalism balance. On the one hand, we love federalism, so states do your own thing. On the other hand, federalism isn't worth a candle if the governments in the states are being overcome through insurrection or rebellion or using their term, domestic violence. So originalism gives us access to that fine-tuned authoritative prudential social ordering decision in a way that a living constitutionalist uh, view would not. So let's turn to judges. Like our aggressive driver that we mentioned earlier, judges have sound reasons to follow the Constitution's original meaning. So let's say that we had a judge who, who says this. We can forget about much of the 18th century and much of the Constitution's text. 
With respect to contemporary constitutional issues, a judge should ask what is a sensible response. I take that to be a non-originalist, living constitutionalist theory of interpretation. And in fact, it's kind of interesting. Um, the, the judge who said this, who I, I'm not going to say who it is, uh, actually had said this at an event where the judge was giving a review of Professor Barnett's newest book, um, uh, our, our, our Republican Constitution, right, right, Elena? Our Republican Constitution is his newest one. And, um, and then the judge kind of went off on a tangent, just saying original and basically stunk, and then had this quote, which I was able to capture. And uh, I was kind of stunned that he said that, because usually judges don't say that publicly, at least, uh, but, the, but the judge did so. So my claim is that a judge who has that view of his or her job is both harming himself and harming his fellow citizens. So first, a judge who fails to utilize originalism like this judge would harm his own capacity to flourish. And I'll give you just one reason. I mentioned earlier the, the judicial virtues. One of the judicial virtues is the virtue of justice as lawfulness. It's the, I think it's the paradigm example of when we think of a judge, what do judges do? They follow the law. We don't go to the Supreme Court because we think they're the ethically best judges ever. We don't go to the Supreme Court because we think that they have the best science or the best math or anything. We go to them because they are supposed to be articulating what the law is. And justice's lawfulness is the character of a judge to follow the law. Now, think of the case, uh, Home Building and Loan versus Blaisdell, which those of you who've had constitutional law will have covered. It was a New Deal, it was a New Deal Great Depression case where Minnesota had passed a moratorium on the foreclosure of mortgages. In other words, it was, it was preventing banks from enforcing their contracts. And that was, that was challenged under the Contracts Clause, which prohibits the impairment of contracts. And the Supreme Court, through a non-originalist interpretation, said that even though the moratorium did impair the obligation of contracts, it didn't violate the Contracts Clause. And my argument is that the judges who signed that opinion hurt themselves because they didn't exercise the virtue of justice's lawfulness. And how do we know that? Because there was nothing in the text, the structure, the history, or the precedent of the Contracts Clause. In other words, there was nothing in the law in 1934 that would have justified that judges, those judges' decisions. And therefore, it was a new decision, and therefore not based on the law. It wasn't the judges exercising justice's lawfulness. And second, a judge who fails to utilize originalism also harms the legal system because the judge is, as har and, and is therefore harming our ability as Americans to coordinate through that legal system. So we had the earlier confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Gorsuch and then Justice Kavanaugh and the Justice Kavanaugh ones, I don't, for those of you who watched it, I thought it was a terrible experience. It was kind of watching a train wreck where you, you know it's coming, it's terrible, you can't take your eyes off it. And what made, what made the Kavanaugh hearings or the Gorsuch hearings or the Barrett hearings, what makes them so important to Americans today? And I think it's because uh, people on one side of the aisle think that the judge, people, I think many people on both sides of the aisle think that the judges aren't following the law they're following what they view about abortion or gun control or the size of government. And what that means is that it's crucially important to get your person who is a politician in robes uh, up to the Supreme Court to effectuate their policy preferences. And, and what that does is it undermines the rule of law. It undermines our respect for the uh, Supreme Court, for the judges who were on there, and undermines our, our ability, the Supreme Court's ability to enforce the Constitution. So what I've argued up to now is that originalism, because it identifies the Constitution's solutions to fundamental coordination problems, best facilitates human flourishing and is therefore the most normatively attractive theory of interpretation. And following originalism is necessary because it effectuates our society's authoritatively established uh, legal norms. 
their solution to our coordination problems, which enables each of us today to pursue our own basic human goods. My last point, judicial virtues. I've, met, I've touched on them a couple of times, and I'll just uh, talk about them a little bit more here because of time constraints. So there's lots of judicial virtues out there. I'm just gonna focus on two as, as examples. Uh, one is theoretical wisdom, and the other is uh, temperance. So theoretical wisdom, as I mentioned earlier, is, is having the firepower to be able to master an area of the law. And with originalism, it can be really challenging because not only do you have to master the uh, text, structure, history, and original meaning, you also have to master the precedent, both, pre both originalist and non-originalist. And Justice Thomas, in his concurrence in U.S. versus Lopez, is my favorite example of that. Of that. Uh, so for those of you who've covered Lopez, Justice Thomas has a, has a long concurrence where he goes through the original meaning of the Commerce Clause and then the precedent. And I think he, just, he does a masterful job. As a teacher, it's, it's a love-hate relationship. I love it because it's a great example. And I hate it because it takes up a whole class that I want to really give it the justice it's due. On the flip side is Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia is, is, my, is one, a longtime uh, favorite justice of mine uh, uh, for, uh, because of his uh, originalism, but also because of his outspokenness, uh, even his pugnaciousness. Um, but there are uh, lines, I would say, about uh, uh, how, one, how, one, how one judge's demeanor interacts with other judges. Uh, and for those of you who remember the, who read the Obergefell decision, Obergefell versus Hodges, Justice Scalia dissented. He had a very vigorous dissent, kind of a standard vigorous dissent, but he also had some statements in there that I think reflect judicial intemperance. Uh, for example, uh, Justice Scalia said in a footnote that if he had joined the majority opinion, he would, quote, hide my head in a bag. And that may be a true statement, maybe he would do that, but I think that that was also an intemperate statement, and that's probably something that didn't contribute to uh, the efficacy of his argument. So what I've done this afternoon is I've summarized, I think, the three key contributions of originalism's promise, the theory of precedent, the natural law account of originalism, and then lastly, uh, just a very brief amount about the judicial virtues. And I'm looking forward to your, your comments, constructive criticisms, and questions. much for having me. Um, certainly, uh, my publisher could not have hoped for a more timely release um, of this book. Um, I started working on this in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings when I, I thought about, you know, how do we get here? Is there any way to fix it? Um, those sorts of questions. And um, I'd like to start talking about, about this, about the book, about this issue by um, conveying a vignette from just over 50 years ago, I guess almost 60 years ago now, when Justice Charles Evans Whitaker retired in March 1962 after just over five years on the court, John F. Kennedy had his first opportunity to shape the high court. The youthful president picked a man of his own generation, Byron White, right? The, the uh, inaugural address by JFK, the torch has been passed to a new generation. Uh, White had met JFK in England while on a Rhodes Scholarship after having been runner-up for the Heisman Trophy and spending a year as the highest paid player in the NFL. And the two became friends. Uh, White was 45 and serving as uh, the Deputy Attorney General under Robert F. Kennedy. Um, he was formally nominated April 3rd, 1962, and uh, eight days later had his hearing, most of which was uh, testimonials by Bar Association officials. There was about 15 minutes of questions for the nominee, mostly about his storied football career. Um, Byron White was surely the last person to play a professional sport while attending Yale Law School. Judiciary Committee unanimously approved him, and later that day, so did the Senate.
uh, on a voice vote. Times have changed. The battle to confirm Brett Kavanaugh showed that the Supreme Court is now part of the same toxic cloud that envelops all of the nation's public discourse. Ironically, Kavanaugh was nominated in part because he was thought to be a safe pick with a long public career that had been vetted numerous times. He was firmly part of the legal establishment, specifically its conservative mainstream, and had displayed a political caginess that made and still make some on the right worry that he would be too much like John Roberts rather than Antonin Scalia or Clarence Thomas. As it turned out, of course, 11th hour sexual assault allegations transformed what was already a contentious process into a partisan Rorschach test. All told, Kavanaugh faced a smear campaign unlike any seen since Robert Bork. Senate Democrats had warned President Reagan that nominating Bork, this is back in 1987 when Bork had been a judge on the DC circuit after a storied academic and government career, uh, but they had warned uh, Reagan that nominating Bork would provoke a fight unlike any he had faced, even after Justice Scalia had been confirmed unanimously the year before, in part because the Republicans still controlled the Senate at that time. But anyway, on the very day that Reagan nevertheless announced Bork as his pick, Senator Ted Kennedy went to the Senate floor to denounce Robert Bork's America, really kind of a a calumny of uh, nightmare scenarios of what would happen if uh, Bork joined the court. It went downhill from there, as the brusque Bork refused to adopt the now well-worn strategy of talking a lot without saying anything. He wanted to score debaters' points, really, uh, more than gain votes. A few years later, Ruth Bader Ginsburg refined that tactic into a pincer movement, refusing to comment on specific fact patterns because they might come before the court, and then also refusing to discuss general constitutional principles because a judge could deal in specifics only. Confirmation processes weren't always like this. The Senate didn't even hold public hearings on Supreme Court nominations until 1916, which was a tumultuous year that witnessed the first Jewish nominee, also a, a big social crusader, uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, and also, after Brandeis was ultimately confirmed, the resignation of a justice to run against a sitting president in 1916, pretty, pretty controversial political year. It wouldn't be until 1938 that a nominee testified at his own hearing. And as I said, in 1962, the part of White's hearing where he himself testified lasted about 15 minutes. But while the process may not have always been the spectacle that it is today, nominations to the highest court were often contentious political struggles. For the Republic's first century, confirmation battles, including withdrawn and postponed nominations, are those on which the Senate failed to act. So Merrick Garland was by no means unprecedented. Uh, that sort of thing was a fairly regular occurrence. George Washington had a Chief Justice nominee rejected by the Senate. James Madison had a nominee rejected. John Quincy Adams, who himself had declined a nomination for Madison, had a nominee, quote unquote, postponed indefinitely. Uh, gotta love that euphemism for Senate procedure. Uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, who then beat uh, John Quincy Adams, had a nominee thwarted as, as well, but a change in the Senate allowed Roger Taney to become Chief Justice later and eventually author Dred Scott. John Tyler, who assumed the presidency in 1841 after the one-month presidency of William Henry Harrison, remember he caught pneumonia at his very long inaugural address, so uh, Tyler never lived down his nickname of his accidency. He was kind of a political orphan. Uh, Whigs disputed his legitimacy, 
and their policy disagreements extended to nominations. The Senate rejected or declined to act on four Tyler nominees, three of them twice, before finally confirming one. Most 19th century presidents had trouble filling seats on the high court. And in the 20th century, presidents Harding, Hoover, Eisenhower, Johnson, Nixon, and Reagan all had failed nominations. FDR never had anyone rejected, although his court packing plan was uh, both in Congress and at the polls. The Democrats ended up losing 80 seats in the House and eight in the Senate, even though FDR had been reelected overwhelmingly uh, two years earlier. And LBJ's proposed elevation of Justice Abe Fortas led to the only successful filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee. Although there's a dispute over whether you can call it a filibuster uh, because Fortas never even had a majority of pledged votes. And there was bipartisan opposition as well. Douglas Ginsburg withdrew before President Reagan could formally send his name to the Senate for having smoked marijuana with his law students. I consider him to be the last public casualty of the drug war. If you think about it in the last 30 years, what other public official has uh, suffered for a revelation of drug use. Then of course, there's Merrick Garland, the first nomination the Senate allowed to expire since 1881. But then the last time a Senate controlled by a party opposite to the president confirmed a nominee to a vacancy arising in a presidential election year was 1888. As we now know, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's gamble worked. Not only did it not hurt vulnerable senators running for reelection, but the vacancy held Republicans together and provided the margin for Donald Trump in key states. Trump then rewarded his electoral coalition with the nomination of Neil Gorsuch, who was confirmed only after the Senate decided on a party line vote to exercise the nuclear option and remove filibusters. Now, opportunities for obstruction have continued, pushed down to blue slips and cloture votes and other arcane parliamentary procedures even as control of the Senate remains by far the most important aspect of the whole endeavor. The elimination of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees was the natural culmination of a tit-for-tat escalation by both parties. More significantly, by filibustering Gorsuch, Democrats destroyed their leverage over more consequential vacancies. Moderate Republican senators wouldn't have gone for a nuclear option to seat Kavanaugh in place of Anthony Kennedy, but they didn't face that dilemma. And they're not facing it now, uh, which if President Trump gets to replace Justice Ginsburg would be an even bigger shift. Given the battles we saw over Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, too many people now think of the justices in partisan terms. That's too bad, but not a surprise when contrasting methods of constitutional and statutory interpretation largely track identification with parties that are more ideologically sorted than ever. But why is there all this focus on one office, however high? If uh, Secretary of State John Kerry had died or resigned in the last year of the Obama presidency, or you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo now, it certainly would have been a big deal, but there's no doubt that the slot would have been filled if someone with appropriate credentials were nominated. Even a vacancy in the vice presidency wouldn't have lasted unduly long. But of course, executive appointments expire at the end of the presidential term while judicial appointments usually outlast any president. A president has few constitutional powers more important than appointing judges. Justice Scalia served nearly 30 years on the high court, giving President Reagan's legal agenda a bridge to the 21st century. Four years ago, there was a big ruling on nonprofit donor disclosures, an issue very important to Cato's heart, probably to Georgetown's Constitution Center as well. But anyway, this ruling was made by a district judge appointed by Lyndon Johnson, might as well be Andrew Johnson, right? Ancient history has been there forever. 
Pundits always argue that judicial nominations should be among voters' primary considerations when choosing a president. Well, the Supreme Court's future truly did hang in the balance in 2016. The election was so consequential, in part because people knew that its winner would have the first chance in more than 25 years to shift the court's ideological balance. Indeed, the court now stands starkly split five to four on many issues, campaign finance, the Second Amendment, religious liberty, regulatory power, just to name a few. If Hillary Clinton had been able to appoint a progressive jurist, even a moderate one like Garland, those policy areas would be headed in a substantially different direction. And that goes just as much, if not more, for the lower courts, which decide 50,000 cases annually, even as the Supreme Court hears fewer and fewer. Every four-year term, the president appoints about a fifth of the judiciary. On Inauguration Day in January 2017, there were already 105 vacancies, and that rose to more than 150 before a tweak in Senate debate sped up confirmations. To put another way, when Obama took office, one of the 13 appellate circuit courts had a majority of judges appointed by Democrats. After his 55 appointments, nine did. Trump has partly reversed that flipping three circuits and getting a record 30 circuit judges confirmed in his first two years, about the same number as Bush and Obama combined at that point in their presidencies, and 53 overall, better than anyone in one term except Jimmy Carter, for whom Congress created many new judgeships to fill, kind of as a consolation for not having any Supreme Court vacancies on his watch. Even if politics has always been part of the process, and even if more justices were rejected in our country's first century, then at second, we still feel something is now different. Confirmation hearings are the only time that judges go toe-to-toe -to -toe with politicians, and that's definitely a different gauntlet than even President Tyler's nominees ran. So is it all TV and Twitter, the 24-hour news cycle and the viral video? Is it that legal issues have become more ideologically divisive? No, the uh, nomination and confirmation process and interplay among president, senate, and outside stakeholders hasn't somehow changed beyond the framers' recognition. And political rhetoric was as nasty in 1820 as it was in 2020. If you Google uh, a campaign video, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, they took the pamphlets from that election and made them as if they were modern um, campaign uh, ads. It's kind of funny stuff, but very, uh, uh, you know, not for the faint of heart. Even the novel use of filibusters is anything but. Uh, all these parts of the current system that we don't like are symptoms of a much larger phenomenon. As government has grown, so have the laws that courts interpret and their reach over ever more of our lives. Senatorial brinksmanship is symptomatic of a larger problem that began long before Kavanaugh, Garland, Thomas, or even Bork. And that's the court's self-corruption, aiding and abetting the expansion of federal power then shifting that power away from the people's legislative representatives and toward executive branch administrative agencies. And the Supreme Court is also called upon to decide, often by a one vote margin, massive social controversies, ranging from abortion and affirmative action to gun rights and same-sex marriage. The judiciary affects public policy more than it ever did. And those decisions increasingly turn on the party of the president who nominated the judge and justice. So as the courts play more of a role in the political process, of course, the judicial nomination and confirmation processes are going to be more fraught with partisan considerations. This wasn't as much of a problem when partisanship meant rewarding your cronies, 
but it's a modern phenomenon for our parties to be both ideologically sorted and polarized, and thus for judges nominated by presidents from different parties to have markedly different constitutional visions. Is there anything we can do to fix this dynamic, to turn down the political heat on Supreme Court vacancies? Reform proposals abound. There's term limits, changing the size of the court, setting new rules for the confirmation process, uh, and more. Probably term limits are the most common ones that are pro uh, proposed. I actually had an op-ed uh, this week, uh, yesterday came out, lifetime ago at this point, um, in the Atlantic, uh, talking about and uh, modestly endorsing the idea of uh, uh, term limits, um, not because it would change how the court operated or any of this power dynamic that I've described, but at least there would be regularity to when there would be vacancies, and we wouldn't have um, this kind of arbitrary um, uh, situation of when vacancies arose or uh, justices trying to uh, time their retirements for politically opportune moments, or these morbid death watches uh, for octogenarian justices. With an 18-year term, you would have uh, two vacancies for every uh, presidential term. Um, certainly, the court <coughs> would become more of a part of Senate and presidential races, um, but uh, that's probably better than kind of what we're living right at this moment uh, right now. Uh, the problem is it would take a constitutional amendment. And so um, if we had the political unity for a constitutional amendment, maybe we wouldn't have the underlying toxicity in the first place. But, you know, that might do something at least for public confidence, if not the functioning of the court. Other proposals, you know, restructuring, adding justices or, you know, adding some and then designating some as Republicans and some as Democrats and then having some quote unquote neutrals. Um, you know, these are too clever by half, and they would further politicize the court, really. They're not solving that problem. As far as court packing is concerned, uh, this is one of the few issues on which I, maybe the only one on which I agree with Bernie Sanders. When he was asked about court packing, he said, well, if we do that, then the next time Republicans take power, they'll add more justices. And I'm not going to do the accent, but in 50 years, we're going to have 87 justices. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, Joe Biden, by the way, also uh, was one of the few uh, primary contenders in the Democratic uh, presidential race, uh, in addition to Sanders, not to endorse court packing, although he might be pressured into it if, uh, if the Democrats win uh, uh, both the Senate and the White House in, uh, in this election. As one court watcher wrote a quarter century ago, Today's confirmation battles are no longer government affairs between the president and the Senate. They're public affairs open to a broad range of players, thus overt lobbying, public opinion polls, advertising campaigns, focus groups, and public appeals have all become a routine part of the process. Those trends have only accelerated such that Supreme Court nominations are perhaps the highest profile set pieces in the American political system. Not even set pieces, but months-long slogs. Once the inside game of picking the nominee ends, the outside game begins, culminating in the literally made-for-TV hearings uh, and then a, uh, a vote that, as we learned with Justice Kavanaugh, can be just as dramatic. It's not good, but we've gotten here because Congress and the presidency have gradually taken more power for themselves and the Supreme Court has allowed them to get away with it, aggrandizing itself in the process. As the court has let both the legislative and executive branches swell between, uh, beyond their constitutionally authorized powers, so have 
the laws and regulations that it now interprets. As we've gone down that warped jurisprudential track, the judiciary affects the direction of public policy more than ever. So of course, again, I mentioned this before, judicial co confirmations will be fraught because we're at the culmination of several trends where competing interpretive theories map onto political parties that are more ideologically coherent than ever. And that's also why the judicial nomination process was, uh, is more cognizant of partisan considerations. Um, as the response of the conservative legal movement to various judicial provocations has shifted, the debate over the court's posture has crystallized. From calls for restraint in the face of the Warren courts making up social policy out of whole cloth, which ultimately led to too much deference to the political branches and thus a long-term loss for constitutional governance, the focus now is on engaging with the law. That approach often calls for invalidating the laws being reviewed rather than exercising passive virtues. Indeed, activism has become a vacuous term that conveys nothing more than disagreement with the judge or opinion being criticized. So the battle has been joined over the legal theory rather than judicial process. That is, so long as we accept that judicial review is constitutional and appropriate, and how a judiciary is supposed to ensure that the government secures and protects our liberties without it is beyond me, then we should be concerned only that a court gets it right, regardless of whether that correct interpretation leads to the challenge law being upheld or overturned. To paraphrase Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing, the little guy should win when he's in the right and the big corporation should win when it's in the right. And so the dividing line isn't between judicial activism and restraint, but between legitimate and vigorous judicial engagement and illegitimate judicial imperialism or abdication. It's a generational battle. Do you get into the fight over federalism and the separation of powers, or do you sit back and let the political branches handle that sort of thing, preferring not to mess up your judicial robes? And that gets us back to the debate over the administrative state, deference doctrines, congressional delegation of legislative power, and even more arcane areas of regulatory law which is why judicial selection is so consequential. As uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn put it, if you get the administrative stuff right, everything else will fall into place. In any event, the court we were accustomed to with one or two human jumps between separate ideological blocks is over. The court is moving right, if only incrementally. While Chief Justice Roberts now has even more incentive to indulge his minimalist fantasies and lead the court from the squishy commanding heights, he's a far surer vote for conservatives, maybe not libertarians, than Justice Kennedy was. What that means in the long term, time will only tell. Though, of course, Roberts is only in the middle of the court if uh, a Democratic president gets to replace Justice Ginsburg. If uh, President Trump gets to confirm someone for that vacancy, then, um, you know, well, this war that we're about to live could make the, the Bork, Thomas, and Kavanaugh processes look like those old school same day confirmations. But the judicial debates we've seen in the last few decades were never really about the nominees themselves, just like proposals for court packing and the like aren't about good government. They're about the direction of the court. The left in particular needs its social and regulatory agendas as promulgated by the executive branch to get through the judiciary because uh, they wouldn't pass as legislation at the national level. That's why progressive forces pull out all the stops against originalist nominees who'd enforce limits on federal power. Indeed, all of the big nominee blowups in modern times, since that bipartisan opposition to Abe Fortas in 1968, have come with Republican appointments. The one quasi-exception, 
didn't involve any attacks on the nominee, but the rare case of an election year vacancy arising under divided government. Merrick Garland, um, who would have been confirmed had Scalia died a year earlier. Not that any of this is a good thing. Uh, former Solicitor General Don Verrilli said, I really, really don't like where we are right now. Something needs to be done to change the situation. If nominations were depoliticized, whether through term limits or any other reforms, or some unpredictable shock that recalibrated norms, that would likewise depoliticize the exercise of judicial power, both in perception and reality. But as I said, term limits would take a constitutional amendment, and everything else is either completely unworkable or doesn't actually solve the identified problem. We can't just wave a magic wand and go back to some halcyon age where the issues we faced were all different. Ron Klain, who was the former chief of staff to Vice Presidents Gore and Biden and would likely be a significant player in a Biden administration, uh, he said, uh, if they could truly, truly go back, I hear from most senators that they would prefer a return to the pre-nuclear option days. But in many ways, it's easier for them now because there's very little con constituency for voting for the other party's nominees. The only lasting solution to what ails our body juridic is to return to the Founders Constitution by rebalancing and devolving power so Washington isn't making so many decisions for the whole country. Depoliticizing and toning down our confirmation process is a laudable goal, but that'll only happen when judges go back to judging rather than bending over backwards to ratify the constitutional abuses of the other branches. The judiciary needs to once again hold politicians and bureaucrats feet to the constitutional fire by rejecting overly broad legislation of dubious constitutional warrant, thus curbing executive agency overreach and putting the ball back in Congress's court. And by returning power back to the states and the people while ensuring that majorities on the local level don't invade individual constitutional rights. After all, the separation of powers and federalism exists not as some dry exercise in Madisonian political theory, but as a means to that singular end of protecting our freedom. These structural protections are the framers' best stab at answering the eternal question of how you empower government to secure liberty while also building internal controls for self-policing. Or as Madison famously put it in Federalist 51, his disquisition on man's non-angelic nature, quote, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Ultimately, judicial power is not a means to an end, but an enforcement mechanism for the strictures of a founding document intended just as much to curtail the excesses of democracy as to empower its exercise. In a country ruled by law and not men, the proper response to an unpopular legal decision is to change the law or amend the constitution. Any other method leads to a sort of judicial abdication and the loss of those very rights and liberties that can only be vindicated through the judicial process. Or to government by black-robed philosopher kings, and as Justice Scalia liked to say, why would we choose nine lawyers for that job? The reason we have heated court battles is that the federal government is simply making too many decisions at a national level for such a large, diverse, pluralistic country. There's no more reason there needs to be a one-size-fits-all health care system, for example, than that zoning laws be uniform in every city. So let federal legislators make the hard calls about truly national issues like defense or actually interstate actual commerce, but let states and localities make most of the decisions that affect our daily lives. Let Texas be Texas and California be California. That's the only way we're going to diffuse tensions in Washington, whether in the halls of Congress or in the marble palace 
of the highest court in the land. So thanks very much for having me again, and I'm happy to answer or dodge any questions that you might have. I'm a professor right now at Notre Dame Law School. I teach structures of the Constitution, uh, law and religion, and First Amendment, and uh, my scholarship focuses on rights of especially minority groups or minority beliefs at the intersection of freedom of speech and religious liberty. And this particular paper looks at some questions in that genre uh, from a more historical lens. So it's great to get to be here with you all today. I recognize some of your names and at least being together in line, online if we can't be together in person. So a lot has been written about a question, which is when the First Amendment requires the judiciary to offer exemptions in order, exemptions from laws in order to protect religious conduct. What an exemption uh, often looks like is that there might be a broadly applicable law, say a law requiring people to have a state motto on their license plate. And so the question is, what happens if someone has a conscientious or religious objection to doing that? How should we handle those sorts of situations? Should we just wait for the legislature to create an exemption to protect that sort of religious belief? Or can the judiciary come in and say that for this particular person, in this particular instance, the government doesn't have a good enough justification to, to trample on someone's religious beliefs and to require them to comply? That is what the Supreme Court said, for example, in a case called Woolley versus Maynard that was dealing with that sort of license plate scenario. But what a lot of scholars have debated about is, what does history tell us about this constitutional question and the role of the judiciary in protecting religious exercise and religious rights? Some scholars have argued that the religious exercise clause or the free exercise clause was understood to include broad protections for religious liberty, consistent with um, the ability of individuals to practice their religion, even when that those religious beliefs sometimes butted up against other broadly applicable laws, like that license plate motto example I was telling you about. Other scholars have argued that the free exercise clause was understood much more narrowly only to include freedom from overt government targeting or discrimination. And so as long as a law like that hadn't been written in order to persecute uh, certain minority groups, then there's no problem. The free exercise clause has nothing to say about the incidental burdens, even if they're significant, that might be placed on those groups. So this scholarly discussion, I think, has been both really interesting and important. <clears throat> but one assumption that has been shared on both sides is the idea that it would have been a significant change in the law and in judicial practice for courts to create judicial exemptions from any sorts of laws or statutes to protect conduct. Another way of thinking about this is that there is a lot of broad agreement that at the founding period, there were lots of protections, including religious exemption protections for religious rights. For example, we exempted Quakers from having to serve in the military because they had conscientious objections to participating in warfare and, and were a very peaceful uh, religious group of people. And so we created exemptions that allowed them to opt out of military service. Similarly, for other minority religious groups during the founding period, we created exemptions 
so that they didn't have to swear oaths when they were in court because some of them view that as against their conscience. So there was a lot of historical practice of um, granting broad protections when religious beliefs sometimes butted up with generally applicable laws. But the debate is about what the role of judges should be in resolving those sorts of conflicts. And um, some scholars are arguing we should just leave that up to the legislature. The, there was no understanding that the judiciary would create exemptions or carve outs from laws. And on the other side, scholars have argued that if the judiciary did start doing that, it would have been a big change in the law. They have just sort of argued that that big change happened. So there's agreement that there would have been a significant change if the judiciary started doing that. The article I'm discussing today challenges that conventional wisdom and is trying to bring to light an important consideration that has been overlooked. A closer look at the historical evidence reveals that judicially created exemptions are neither new nor extraordinary, just the opposite. Under a widely accepted doctrine known as the equity of the statute, courts exempted conduct from uh, a wide variety of laws that swept too broadly. And they did so in order to protect a wide range of individual rights and interests. This was a practice that was embraced both in England and America leading up to and during the founding period. A clearer understanding of the judiciary's practice for granting exemptions matters for understanding and gaining a clear understanding of the historical meaning of the free exercise clause. There's particular urgency for this question right now because the Supreme Court granted certiorari on a case, uh, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, where they will hear argument on that case this fall in November. And one of the questions presented in that case asks the court to revisit its approach to the judiciary offering religious exemptions. In the 1940s to the 1980s, the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment required courts to grant judicially uh, created exemptions in certain con contexts and to protect religious conduct. Then in Justice Scalia's famous 1990 opinion in Employment Division versus Smith, the court reversed its approach. And now the court seems poised to potentially change its trajectory yet again. So in this talk today, I'm gonna touch on three points. First, I'll talk about a history of judges creating exemptions to statutes under the doctrine I mentioned, equity of the statute. I'll explain how this history is relevant to modern constitutional adjudication. Second, I'll discuss some implications of this historical perspective, including with respect to the assumption that um, some of the assumptions the court relied on in the Employment Division versus Smith case. I'll then briefly conclude. So the, um, the historical story of religious exemptions, I would submit, is simply part of a larger story about early development of judicial review and judicial constitutional adjudication. By shifting our perspective away from just a siloed focus on religion to a broader historical lens, a myriad of judicially created exemptions from statutes have been hiding in plain sight. Courts created these exemptions um, in a practice that perhaps dates back to Aristotle, who said, Laws being in their nature general cannot decide rightly in the infinite variety of particular cases. Thus, when an exception to the rule occurs, this exception is admitted in equity. Aristotle talked about how admitting these sorts of exceptions in equity would fix the defect inherent in laws by nature of their universality. 
Blackstone also is famous for championing this doctrine, explaining that courts accept those circumstances that the legislator would have accepted had he foreseen them. And again, this interpretation method was a norm for courts leading up to and during the founding period. Just as a brief side note, the, the label for this doctrine, equity of the statute or equitable interpretation should not be confused with remedies that at the time were specific to courts of equity as opposed to courts of law. The former was a run-of-the-mill statutory interpretation method that was used by all different types of courts. And one method that judges would use in this equitable interpretation genre to determine the most equitable application of the statute involved on reliance, involved a reliance on the mischief rule. The mischief rule would look at the context and the problem that the legislature was focused on and that the law was aimed at solving. Exemptions could be offered from laws by the judiciary when a specific application didn't actually address the mischief that was that the law was trying to solve and that was related to the law. So in America, judges were relying in part on the legal fiction that the legislature would not have wanted to violate the Constitution. And that's how they justified this sort of equitable interpretation. One example of this type of equitable interpretation comes from the 1813 case of Starr versus Robinson. There, a statute provided that all bond or bonds which have been taken by the sheriff are hereby discharged. So in other words, if there has been um, a bond or a bonds that the, the sheriff has taken um, against someone and they're, they're a debtor, that's discharged. The debtor doesn't owe money anymore. That's what the statute is saying. So a case was brought by a debtor whose, whose debt had already been assigned to a third party creditor to collect prior to the statute being passed. The debtor said that this statute was uh, too clear to be construed to exempt his bond. It said that it, all bond and bonds had been discharged and so his bond should be discharged. Nevertheless, the court disagreed and concluded that this broad statutory language could not apply to this particular debtor bond and it exempted it. The court said that if the law had been written so as to explicitly apply to discharge that sort of bond, it could not be permitted to operate as it would have been a palpable violation of the constitution interfering with freedom to contract. Rather than declaring the law facially void, uh, the court decided to avoid doing that, instead construed it in a way that would avoid implying the legislature violated the constitution either out of ignorance or design, but would still constrain legislative power and prevent what the court was viewing as an unconstitutional application. Keith Whittington is a scholar who has pointed to some of these early equitable interpretation cases as serving as historical analogs for what is now modern as applied constitutional challenges. A successful as applied constitutional challenge today essentially leads to the judiciary just refusing to enforce certain discrete aspects of some applications of laws that would result in an unconstitutional outcome. But a facial challenge, um, standing in contrast to that is when the judiciary today would say this particular law, these words of the law have no valid application. In other words, under as applied challenges, modern courts are creating exemptions from statutes. Two key moves appear to have occurred over time as judges evolved from engaging in explicit equitable adjudication to, among other things, as applied constitutional adjudication. First, judges spoke more clearly in terms of conflicts with constitutional requirements rather than relying on lofty 
natural law rhetoric or rhetoric about fundamental principles of justice. Second, judges moved away from relying on a, a legal fiction of legislative intent to justify an unnatural statutory construction and instead became more candid about the fact that they were reining in certain applications of statutes that would simply be unconstitutional and therefore would not be allowed. So what are the implications of this broader judicial history um, when it comes to the more specific context of religious exemptions? Importantly, I think that this historical perspective undercuts at least three of the assumptions that are relied on by the court in Smith and also that some subsequent scholars have relied on historically in order to defend Smith. First, contrary to Justice Scalia's assertion, the idea of the judiciary providing exemptions from generally applicable laws was not an anomaly. He called it a constitutional anomaly. But this wouldn't have been anomalous at all during the founding time period. To the contrary, courts had no problem announcing exemptions to old, broadly phrased laws where application of those laws contradicted other higher forms of fundamental law. Opponents of religious exemptions can't rely on the unprecedented nature of judicial exemptions as evidence that religious exercise was only a narrow protection against the government. In other words, they can't argue that this sort of remedy was outside the scope of what was properly understood to be within the realm of judicial power. Second, citing to Professor Philip Hamburger, Justice Scalia argued that generally applicable laws should not be subject to judicial scrutiny. Um, and this is in part because religious liberty didn't include the right to do that which was lawfully prohibited. And if a law was generally applicable, it was lawfully prohibiting things. This circular reasoning overlooks an important fact that under things like equitable interpretation of statutes, judges were determining that many applications of a statute would not themselves be lawful, thus requiring an exemption. Courts refusing to apply statutes in light of these constitutional limitations followed from recognition that constitutional limitations were themselves part of the law, uh, that baseline legal norm. Historically, judges also viewed broad and generally uh, applicable language in statutes skeptically as a mandate that may not have been very carefully written by the legislature and that when it butted up against constitutional rights, needed to be reined in through equitable exemptions to prevent problematic applications. Finally, Justice Scalia argued that a society that allowed judicial religious exemptions would be courting anarchy um, <clears throat> and it would be devastating for the rule of law. The founding era courts provided equitable exemptions precisely because they understood that remedy to be more respectful than declaring a law facially void. That preference for constitutional adjudication notably continues today. The modern Supreme Court has described as applied challenges as a modest remedy, the basic building block of constitutional adjudication and a default. In contrast, facial challenges today are described as a disfavored constitutional remedy, a more drastic tool that courts engage in. And outside of the religious context, Justice Scalia has actually written in favor as, as applied challenges um, being a default over facial challenges. So to be sure, the fact that Smith relies on some assumptions that have no basis in history doesn't go the full distance of establishing that religious exemptions are required by the First Amendment or that Smith should be overruled. To be fair, even some defenders of Smith acknowledge that the case relies on faulty analysis for a number of reasons. So a full treatment of all of the historical evidence about religious exemptions is beyond the scope of this article. Um, 
but an understanding of the role equitable interpretation plays for judicial exemptions is important to recognize the potential judicial role in this debate and adds at least um, some historical support for one important reason. And that is that the mischief rule that I talked about earlier was an equitable form of analysis that has some resemblance to modern strict scrutiny analysis. Courts in applying the mischief rule focused again on the problem that the legislature was trying to solve when it crafted the law. And then they might employ the mischief rule to exempt applications of laws that didn't actually help the government address its goal or the mischief it was trying to solve. So um, similarly, under modern strict scrutiny, the a court considers what particular government interest is animating enforcement of the law. And then um, it, it identifies what, whether or not particular application of law in a certain context is actually going to advance that interest. There's one example that Blackstone provides of the mischief rule that sort of shows how this is similar in some ways to looking at uh, the substantial advancement prong of strict scrutiny. He described a law that stated, whoever drew blood in the streets should be punished with utmost severity. But then Blackstone asks whether that law could punish a surgeon who opened the vein of a person who fell down in the street with a medical issue. And Blackstone was saying, basically, um, of course, this law wouldn't be able to be applied to punish a surgeon who is trying to help someone. That application would do nothing to advance the mischief that the law was really aimed at, which was to prohibit violent bloodshed in the street. Uh, this sort of mischief analysis, which again is, resembles strict scrutiny analysis in important respects, also is similar to the type of analysis some of the early courts employed when they provided religious exemptions. So in two of the earliest cases we have dealing with requests for religious exemptions, it was a priest requesting to uh, receive an exemption from subpoena requirements so that that priest could keep certain confessionals, um, confidential information that had been divulged during confessional as something private and not something that he was going to testify about in court. Both um, the New York court and a Virginia court determined that application of these sorts of subpoena rules in general did, you know, they were aimed at reducing crime and bringing truth to the court bodies. But they concluded that applying this rule to this particular case, to this priest, wouldn't actually help the government combat its, uh, its mischief of reducing crime. If anything, in, you know, encouraging criminals to go do things like confess might actually also be helpful to crime. And putting this priest in a situation where he was forced between a rock and a hard spot and either to breach one of his most important um, priestly functions or suffer severe penalties wasn't going to do anything to help the government. So they offered a, a judicially created religious exemption. This historical perspective contradicts the, the position asserted by some scholars that this strict scrutiny analysis we employ now has no basis in history and that it would have been um, sort of preposterous to think of courts engaging in this type of analysis. So in conclusion, this article is questioning this conventional wisdom regarding judicial exemptions and looking to the question from a broader perspective. When one views um, 
judicial exemptions for religion through the broader lens of equitable interpretation, one finds historical evidence of judicially created exemptions across the board that have been hiding in plain sight. The judiciary's ability to modify statutes to cohere with higher law principles like constitutional rights was widely accepted in the early republic. Though the judiciary wasn't necessarily using modern language of exemptions, that was functionally what judges were doing on a large scale and throughout the country across a host of personal rights. This historical evidence demonstrates that um, it would have been an appropriate judicial role, uh, it would have been understood as an appropriate judicial role for courts to protect religious exercise and to carve out um, exemptions from laws in order to to make sure that that robust protection for religious exercise continued. There may be other reasons to debate the historical support for religious exercise, but this one of the most prominent ones, which has been this concern about if exemptions were part of the judicial role, isn't a, a critique that historically I think is a sound one to rely on. And in fact, these courts were engaging in things that looked an awful lot like the type of strict scrutiny analysis courts engage in now. So this approach may have more historical support than the court's current approach under Employment Division versus Smith. And from there, I'm happy to take questions. The impetus for this paper was a case that we filed an amicus briefing called Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. Um, and in that case, it was filed by a Nevada citizen in a Nevada state court against um, what the party described as an arm of the state of California. And California said, this violates the constitution. We have a constitutional right of sovereign immunity. And the Supreme Court said, sure, why not? Um, this bothered us for two reasons. First of all, there is no particular clause of the constitution that limits what a state can do to another state in its courts. Um, that's not what the 11th amendment says. That's not what everything, anything else in the constitution says. And secondly, it seemed like the Supreme Court's hearing the appeal was barred by the 11th Amendment, because here you have a suit by a citizen of a different state against the state of California, and that's supposed to be outside the judicial power of the United States. So what is the United States Supreme Court doing hearing this case? So that suggested to us that it was necessary to try and clean up some confusing areas of the, the 11th Amendment, and it uh, caused us to embark on our paper. So I don't know if you guys have gotten an opportunity to read the paper. It's all on SSRN. Um, if not, so I encourage you to look it up. Um, but the basic uh, point that we try to make is we try to draw a distinction between the common law immunity that states might enjoy under general common law and the very specific prohibition on federal courts under the 11th Amendment, that these two are different things. And once you start analyzing them as different things, you start understanding um, how they might function differently. Um, so let's see how this works. First of all, the common law immunity. This was an immunity from compulsory process. So you could not hail a state into court and force them to show up. And it was derived from general and international law. If you look at some of the old sources like Nathan versus Virginia, they talk about this as one of the rules of the common law regarding sovereigns. You cannot hail another sovereign into court. Our claim is that that immunity survived Article 3, notwithstanding Chisholm, which said that it had been abolished by the head of jurisdiction for suits between citizens of other states and sovereign states. Um, our claim is that, no, in fact, the, the head of jurisdiction was there, but nonetheless, this personal jurisdiction immunity remained in force unless the state waived it. And in that way, it's like federal sovereign immunity. So there's 
Article III jurisdiction for cases where the United States is a party, but that doesn't mean that you can just go and sue the United States because they have this same unwritten common law immunity from compulsory process. Um, Madison and the uh, ratification conventions also analogized it to rules about couverture or alienage. So for instance, a married woman couldn't sue, that would be absurd, or an alien enemy couldn't sue. But that doesn't mean that the constitution sort of left them out of the citizen diversity or alien diversity clauses. It just meant that there were other rules other than the availability of subject matter jurisdiction that might come in to interrupt those suits. And likewise, the immunity from compulsory process was not a subject matter jurisdiction, it was a personal jurisdiction immunity, but it might prevent you from bringing that suit in federal court. Okay, add all of that to all of this, the new cases that the court has heard from the end of the 19th through 20th century. So some of the most famous sovereign immunity cases, we argue are actually common law immunity cases, not 11th Amendment cases at all. So Hans versus Louisiana, that a citizen can't sue his own state, that's outside the terms of the 11th Amendment. There's no sort of penumbral 11th Amendment immunity that affects you here. It's just the common law rule that you can't force your own state into court. Um, likewise, Seminole Tribe, does Congress have power to abrogate this immunity in federal court? That wasn't an 11th Amendment case. That was a common law immunity case on our reading. And there might be reasons why Congress is unable to abrogate it. I'll be happy to talk about more of those in the Q&A. Um, likewise, Alden versus Maine, can they abrogate in state court? Or Hyatt, can a state um, you know, abridge another state's immunity? And would the other state have to recognize it? All of these are common law questions, not about the 11th Amendment. So what is about the 11th Amendment? Well, the 11th Amendment is pretty precise. It says, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or citizens or subjects of any foreign state. Our claim is that this amendment means precisely what it says. It is a cross-cutting bar on federal subject matter jurisdiction that is not waivable, that is not abrogable by Congress, and that applies in the cases that it describes and in no others. So how does that work? Well, let's start off uh, line by line. Judicial power of the United States. That is a clear limit on the subject matter jurisdiction of federal courts. It is not about their personal jurisdiction like the common law immunity. As a result, it's non-waivable because as everyone knows, you jurisdiction. Um, that made sense at the time because there were a number of pending cases where process had already been served on various states by private citizens under Chisholm, um, the Supreme Court decision that said that this was okay. And the, um, you know, the, the framers of the 11th Amendment wanted to kick those states out of court, or wanted to kick those cases out of court, rather. In the 1880s, the Supreme Court messed this up because there was a complicated case in which a state had intervened as a plaintiff. And they said, oh yes, that's fine. The state can intervene as a plaintiff because this is just a personal privilege waivable at the state's pleasure. And from then on, the Supreme Court and everybody else started saying the 11th Amendment is waivable. Even though the text of the 11th Amendment gives the states no ability to waive, it's just a mandatory rule about the federal judicial power. So our argument is all that stuff is wrong. The 11th Amendment is not waivable in a case that falls within its terms shall not be construed to extend. Well, what exactly shall not be construed to extend to various things? The answer is the judicial power. So we say this is a cross-cutting limit. It reflects all of Article Three. The more common theory in the academy, which is known as the diversity theory, reads the amendment much more narrowly. It says that it only applies 
to state diversity jurisdiction. It's just a rule for how to construe the jurisdiction given in Article 3 for when a citizen sues a different state, and that it doesn't have any application to federal question cases or any other, um, uh, any other circumstance in the heads of jurisdiction. We think that's wrong. We think it's not as good a reading of the text, which for one thing is a cross-cutting limit. Um, the term shall not be construed to extend were used back then, not just to resolve interpretive confusions, but just to carve out exceptions from statutes. So um, you have a general statute and they say, well, it shall not be construed to apply to more than five justices at the same time or something like that. Um, that is the sort of change that um, doesn't have anything to do with interpreting the text. It's just carving out an exception. It also um, fits, our theory we think fits better with the drafting history. So Senator Gallatin, um, in the, while this was being drafted, wanted to introduce an amendment to say that the 11th Amendment wouldn't apply in treaty cases. To us, that, make, that suggests that without his amendment, it would have applied in treaty cases, even though those are federal question cases. Um, and also the early interpretation. So in a case called Osborne versus United States, a very famous federal question case, the Supreme Court said that it was okay to sue Ralph Osborne, treasurer of uh, Ohio, without joining the state because even though this was a federal question case, you couldn't join the state because that would violate the 11th Amendment. So it seems pretty clear that the Supreme Court as of the 1820s thought that um, federal question cases were included in the 11th Amendment because that was necessary to the holding in Osborne. So all of this suggests to us that shall not be construed means the whole thing shall not be construed and you can't file federal question cases if you come from a different state than the state that you're suing. Why would they have done such a thing? Why did they care about preventing, you know, allowing in-state citizens to sue under federal questions, but not out of state? Um, it's not that they had some special reason for doing it. They just were, you know, making a, a, a broad brush stroke. I mean, they were, they were cutting off a branch of jurisdiction and they were cutting it off with a chainsaw rather than a scalpel. If you guys are familiar with the traditional Christmas movie, Die Hard, you will remember a scene in which uh, Alexander uh, Goodenov um, cuts through a whole bunch of wires all at once with a chainsaw. That is the 11th Amendment. Um, it is just cutting through Article 3. It's not being super careful there. They're just trying to eliminate all the potential sources they could think of for suits against states that they really, really did not want. Okay, moving on to any suit. What that means is that you cannot abrogate the 11th Amendment in Congress. Under current doctrine, it is okay for Congress to abrogate the 11th Amendment if they're doing it under the 14th Amendment. Um, and, uh, you know, we find that a little bit strange. Um, you would never say that the 14th Amendment allows you to abrogate the Fourth Amendment so you can have suspicionless searches inside people's houses for civil rights violations. It doesn't abrogate the Sixth Amendment. You can't take away jury trial. and doesn't abrogate the Eighth Amendment. So civil rights violators can't be tortured to death. Um, you know, no one would think that the 14th Amendment does any of that stuff. So why would it override another constitutional limit in the 11th Amendment um, governing the federal judicial power? More interestingly, the cases where the Supreme Court said this was okay were not 11th Amendment cases. They involved in-state citizens who, again, might have to face the common law immunity if they're trying to sue their own state, but maybe Congress has more ability to abrogate that under the, under the 14th Amendment than it would under other things. We're not sure that's true, and I'm happy to say more in the Q&A, but at least that's plausible in a way that abrogating some other part of the Constitution is not. So maybe you can abrogate the common law immunity, not the 11th Amendment immunity. In law or equity, what's that doing there? Well, the only reason that they would possibly have put that in 
is to exempt out admiralty cases. Why would they do that? Admiralty cases were typically done in rem at the time. And so the fact that you might be dealing with property in which the state had a claim didn't necessarily mean that the state could invoke an immunity. Um, so in admiralty cases, you can sometimes have an in personam admiralty case. And if you do, and if you're suing the state or if you're trying to go after state property, that's just up to the common law rule. Um, courts mostly get this right, but not entirely. There's a little bit of slippage between sort of, is this a common law immunity? Is this an 11th Amendment immunity? Um, and our point is just, let's be clear about it, in law or equity leaves admiralty out. Where does it make a difference? Well, the Supreme Court today allows admiralty jurisdiction in a lot more cases than it used to. You know, um, there was a joke that if you, if you found a puddle, the Supreme Court would say that it could exercise admiralty jurisdiction over it. Um, so, you know, if that is not the original scope of admiralty jurisdiction, then you probably can't sue states at all, even if they consent, even if Congress has tried to abrogate it, et cetera, using admiralty jurisdiction over a puddle, you've got to use the original admiralty jurisdiction, which might be limited to the high seas. Commenced or prosecuted. What was that language doing there? Well, that language applied not only to cases that were originally filed in a federal court, but also to cases that were prosecuted there. That means that it applies on appeal, even in the Supreme Court. So if you file your case in state court and the state is okay with that, and then you appeal, appeal, appeal up through the state system and then appeal to the Supreme Court, then it has to decide, is this within its appellate jurisdiction? Is it within the judicial power of the United States? According to Cohen's versus Virginia, we figure that out not biased on who's appealing to the Supreme Court, but based on how the suit was originally filed. So if Virginia initiates a criminal prosecution in its own, in its own courts against the Cohen's, that is not a suit commenced or prosecuted by the private citizen. That's a suit commenced or prosecuted by Virginia, by the prosecutors. And so it's outside the scope of the amendment. It can be appealed at the Supreme Court. But somebody like Mr. Hyatt suing the state of California, that's not okay, and the Supreme Court can't hear it. Um, there was a case called McKesson um, uh, not too long ago in which the Supreme Court announced, yes, we can hear appeals from state courts, even if they were originally filed as a diverse plaintiff against the state, and that's because our jurisdiction was inherent in the constitutional plan. Um, we agree with Justice Souter in dissent who said that that makes no sense. Um, indeed, uh, you know, the constitutional plan is whatever the Constitution says it is. And if the Constitution says no jurisdiction, then they can't have any jurisdiction here. Um, and in Hollingsworth versus Virginia, which is a 1798 case decided weeks after the amendment's ratification was announced, um, the plaintiffs raised this exact hypo. They said, well, if there were a um, case filed in state courts with permission and then appealed up to the Supreme Court under federal question jurisdiction, of course the Supreme Court couldn't hear it. Um, nonetheless, the Supreme Court decides otherwise in McKesson. Um, we think that a limit on the judicial power of the United States clearly affects the Supreme Court. Um, it may be a very important court, but it doesn't have any power outside Article 3. Um, and it is limited by the scope of the judicial power. It can't declare for itself what the constitutional plan has to be. Against one of the United States, who does the 11th Amendment protect? Well, we say it's states only. That means not counties or cities, not Native American tribes, not territories, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, um, not compact clause entities that are created when multiple states get together. None of that is um, a, a one of the United States to enjoy the 11th Amendment. 
They may get protection under the common law immunity. There are lots of cases about, especially with regard to Native American tribes, about the scope of their immunity. But um, it's just not an 11th Amendment question. And courts should stop mentioning the 11th Amendment when they talk about Puerto Rico or territories, et cetera. And who um, can't file under the 11th Amendment? Well, it says citizens of another state or citizens or subjects of any foreign state. That means it applies to suits by diverse plaintiffs only. That does not include suits by states. So New Hampshire versus Louisiana, where New Hampshire um, was basically sort of adopt, it was, it was uh, the assignee for collection of one of its citizens' uh, bond suits. We would say that's not an 11th Amendment case. It's just a common law case. Likewise, foreign states, so Monaco versus Mississippi, not an 11th Amendment case in our view, but it is potentially a common law immunity case. Um, federal corporations or compact clause entities like in Alabama versus North Carolina from 2010, whether those entities can sue states um, in federal court depends in part on how you think corporate citizenship works. I'd be very happy to talk about more about that in the Q&A. It used to be that uh, corporations were treated as just agglomerations of individuals. Um, then the Supreme Court said, no, 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 they're only a citizen of the state that created them. Um, and so maybe a federal corporation is in some way stateless as a result of that. I'm not sure I buy that, but if you take current doctrine um, to hold that it sort of isn't a citizen of any state, well, then it's not on, it, on this list. And then it can sue states, notwithstanding the 11th Amendment, though, again, it still might have to face the common law immunity. So in sum, the 11th Amendment is widely misunderstood. And it's misunderstood because courts for a very long time have used the words 11th Amendment immunity to refer to any kind of sovereign immunity instead of a very specific kind of sovereign immunity, one that binds federal courts, their subject matter jurisdiction, and only in the cases that the amendment names. The 11th Amendment applies according to its terms. For everything else, there's the common law. So thank you guys very much. Um, I will 